welcome back to Ness and Dorma. I'm joined today by Rob Smythe. Hello, Rob. Hello, Gary. Are you not going to announce yourself? I am in a moment. I thought <laughs> I was going to be terribly gracious and give the first dibs to uh, to you guys. <laughs> uh, and I'm also joined by Mike Gibbons. Morning, guys. How you doing? Hi, Mike. And I am Gary Naylor at Gary Naylor nine nine nine. For those of you foolish enough to do Twitter, where you can find us at Nessendorma Pod, and we'd be delighted to have any feedback that you may ha- uh, have for us. And uh, before we go into our subject matter for uh, this episode, though, um, we must reflect uh, just very briefly on the passing of a, a, a great player and, by all accounts, a great man, uh, Ray Clements. Um, Rob, have you any Quick thought on on Ray Clements. Yeah, but it's slightly before my time as a player. The thing that always fascinated me about Clements was this story of him and Shilton being rotated by Ron Greenwood. He couldn't pick between them, so it'd be given one game on, one game off. Um, I don't know whether it was kind of ahead of its time or absolute madness. Um, But yeah, I mean, by all accounts, Clements was an extremely decent human being. I know you, you kind of... I always feel like when when people die, you can you can tell. I mean, everyone accentuates the positive when someone dies, but you can sort of sense the difference between someone who was sometimes a good person, sometimes not, and the kind of euphemisms, and somebody who was genuinely a really decent man. And you get the impression that Clements was uh, absolutely the latter. Yeah, I think that came out in some of the uh, the obituaries for sure. Uh, Mike, uh, a thought on on Ray Clements. Uh, yeah, same as Rob. Uh, really, I would say it reminds me a little bit of when um, I, I think we recorded one of these before, just after Jimmy Armfield had um, had passed on, and I, I think a very similar guy in terms of you know great, very uh, uh, sort of well known and well regarded player, but uh, acknowledged within and around the game as a really decent human being as well. Um, having having written the Euro '96 book. Um, a few years ago, I had to you know go through autobiographies of players from that era of the mid nineties, and he he took over as England's goalkeeper coach uh, under Glenn Hoddle. Um, and a lot of the players in their books, um, you know, talk about Clements and you know what what a thoroughly decent guy he was. Um, and uh, like Rob, a bit before my time, but the goalkeeper in Liverpool's you know great imperial phase of the 70s won all those um things and um the thing i remember him for is like looking through panini albums <laughs> when i was starting to get into football in the mid 80s and looking down and seeing that he had 61 england caps <laughs> but not but not knowing anything more than that you know he didn't have a youtube or you know you, could, you couldn't look him up or anything like that so it's uh yeah that always struck me and it's uh, i guess a bit unlucky being around at the same time as shilton because as they're goal, both goalkeepers it's not like you could play them in different positions. Um, how, how did they get 170 odd caps between them? I, don't, I suppose Shilton played until he was 40, but you also yeah. there weren't enough games to go around, you know? Yeah, well, I, I, I looked into this when I was doing an, another podcast. Um, yeah, sorry for cheating on you uh, about <laughs> six months ago. Um, and it, I think it was in November that England played their 1,000th international. Mm. So if you, if you think that Shilton's played in 125 of those... Mm. Yeah, Clement says it's an incredible amount of experience to have, and I guess they would have played a lot less 
uh, you know, prior to the seventies and stuff. But um, they still yeah. played a fair old bit because they used to play the home internationals every mm. every year. Mm. So there was always plenty of uh, of games to go around. I'll I'll just throw in uh, one memory of of Ray Clemens. I mean, he was obviously playing for. Liverpool, but he always got a big hand at, uh, at, from the Gladys Street when he when he ran out and uh, always returned that hands above the head, and it's really a, a, a similar gesture that uh, that I'm going to record. Uh, I was at White Hart Lane in what was deemed to be a, a title decider when um, Everton beat Spurs in in 1985. I'm pretty sure it was, and uh, the the one of the crucial incidents in that game was very famous. Uh, saved by Neville Southall, and uh, I think he saved a header from Mark Falco at uh, point blank range. And um, there's a there's a picture. I don't remember seeing it. I think I was leaping about as everybody was then in a standing uh, terrace behind the goal. Um, it was at the far end from us. There was a famous picture, and it was caught on camera as well of of Ray Clements quietly applauding um, Neville Southall's save. So in the in the heat of battle, and, and Clements could be a ruthless goalkeeper, um, brilliant positional play behind a rock solid uh, offside trap uh, in which he uh, cleared man and ball uh, whenever necessary. So he was a ruthless competitor, but um, he had that decency which everyone talked about, which came through even in the heat of battle, uh, applauding Southall. And I know it, it meant a lot for Neville Southall to be applauded by a man he admired greatly. Uh, in that uh, in that uh, cauldron, the um, the abiding image I have of him actually is when he went back to Liverpool with Spurs. I think it was the day Liverpool won the yeah. league, and he yeah, went out yeah. applauding the cop, like you say, hands above his head. I think was that part of the match of the day titles for a while. Maybe that's why it's stuck in my brain. Um, but yeah, and you can just see the cop in the background, obviously all applauding him. Um, yeah, it's a nice image. Yeah, I think he got a, a, a big hand wherever he went and, and taken far too soon. You know, the, know. Uh, the older I get, the, the, the kind of closer it comes and you know, one can't help uh, sort of doing a slight sort of Trumpian narcissism and reflecting everything back on oneself. But it just uh, underlines to, to any listeners who need it that uh, enjoy the day uh, because we never know how many more we're going to get. And that sounds cliched, but boy, oh boy, it gets truer with every passing one of them, I tell you. Are you telling the listeners to um, turn this podcast off and do something more spiritually no. rewarding? <laughs> what better way could you enjoy uh, a day than uh, than the conversation <laughs> at Nesson Dorman? I'm selling it harder than ever. And we will move on to the conversation that we have at Nesson Dorma because we're going to um, complete our uh, look at France 98 by um, going to the round of 16 the quarters, the semi-final, and the final. Uh, that's coming a little uh, later, but um, we're going to start by looking at our player of the week, who is um, a man who sort of has become more famous uh, to the current generation due to shenanigans, uh, one might call it, at UEFA, but to um, certainly to my generation was one of the uh, all-time great players, who is Michel Platini. Um, and when I undertook the research into the career of uh, Michel Platini, I have to say I was I was somewhat surprised. Uh, my extensive research took me all the way to Wikipedia, and um, I, I looked through, and I was say, somewhat surprised that his honours, and indeed much of his reputation as one of the, the great players of the 
20th century rests on a relatively short period um, after his move from Saint-Étienne, uh, when he went to Juventus and then sort of won everything there. But it's a, it's it's not a, a kind of career trajectory that, that one sees too often. Um, so, gentlemen, just a, just a reflection on uh, Platini, sort of the, the early years when he starts off at Nancy, then goes to Saint-Étienne. He has some success, but really it's the move to Juventus at the age of 27 that uh, that fires his career. Um, Rob, do you want to say a few words on that? Yeah, I mean, I suppose in those days, talent was spread a bit more evenly through the leagues and through teams. So well, it wasn't that uncommon for... Um, you know, I mean, even Maradona, how many league titles did Maradona win? I, I'm not saying he's a worse player than Gary Neville because of that, but, you know. Um, so it wasn't that unusual. I mean, I, again, I, I probably became aware of him retrospectively. I know he was involved in the 78 team. We were a, a really good side and we're in one of the groups of all-time groups of death with the host Argentina and a really good Italy side. They went out, but they were really unlucky. They, there was a classic game against... Um, Argentina, they lost 2-1. I think Platini scored, did he? Is that right, Mike? He did, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, 82, 84, like you say, that period from 82 to 86, he was probably, well, in fact, I think he was the best player in the world, uh, even back the Maradona, who was kind of, had his mix spell at Barcelona and was kind of settling in at Napoli. Um, and yeah, that, that that definitely defines him, that, that period, particularly, obviously, uh, which I'm sure we'll get on to, um, Euro 84. Yeah, before we, we come to that, um, I, I think you're, you're right in that uh, assessment um, and in the talent being more broadly spread. I mean, I was aware of him and I was up to talk uh, about him. I think he was in uh, France captain before he went to Juventus in 82. But I was struck by uh, remarks made by um, one or two of his teammates in one of those um, documentaries that are produced in Europe, so it's all sort of overdubbed sound and things like this. But they made the valuable point that it was when he went to Juventus that he kind of stopped playing for fun. He got out of the French tradition of, of playing as an entertainer that's, and that's, got into the, the Italian uh, tradition of playing as a, a hard-nosed competitor. And maybe he, he brought together, as he did with his heritage and indeed his name, um, two kind of almost uh, philosophies of football, or I hate using that word, but the, the kind of entertainment-led approach that the, the French took, and we saw the joy of, of that in some of their uh, performances in uh, in Platini's time, but also um, the, the hard edge of, of Italian uh, football, where to win was everything, and uh, as long as the, the end was there, the means were justified. I mean, is there anything in that, Mike? Um, yeah, I think there probably is, and I think with him, uh, there was a mystique about playing in Serie A then as well. I mean, you wouldn't have been able to see any of it, would you? But you know, you knew at the, you knew he was one of the one of the best players in the world. Really. I think he won three Ballon d'Ors in a row, mm. eighty three to eighty five. And as you say, he did go up a gear. Um, after he made that move. It's interesting, really, that that change can take place in someone at 27. Um, before that, from what I gather in France, he'd been seen as um, not a disappointment, but in that he hadn't matched expectations for France, particularly at the World Cup. I think I think he was injured in 82, or he was carrying an injury anyway, Yeah. that, um, that restricted his performances a bit. But um, 
yeah, if you if you look at what he won when he went to um, Juventus and that 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 period as well, that kind of five years he was there is probably one of the hardest league championships that um, <clears throat> the world's ever seen. And I think the nature of that championship would probably change you as a player. I mean, it's so um, it's so tight, and yeah. uh, we 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 had a look into this once. I think when we uh, we were doing the Denmark book about Preben Elkjar, so the year Verona won the title in um, 84-85, one in six games was a nil-nil draw. Yeah. The top scorers scored, I think, something like 43 goals in 30 games. And Platini was actually top scorer in Serie A for three seasons in a row, playing from midfield. I think that's underrated, actually. He was very prolific. Just looking, 80s or 84, 20 and 28 league games. In Serie A in the 80s, that's worth probably 40... Now I would say, and that's just league goals. Um, yeah, and obviously nine in five in Euro eighty four, which is pretty astonishing. I think that's a really good point, actually, that you make. Uh, one of the things that surprised me is that he was capo canoneri. Capo canoneri. I was watching the Godfather Part One and indeed Part Two this week, so um, you would think my Italian would be uh, up to <laughs> stuff, but it's 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 not. Yeah, top scorer. Um, the head of the shooters, I think it is in Italian. Uh, there, and he was he was top scorer in the first season. He went to Juventus. There was no um, there was no period of adjustment, uh, even though um, he may have had a period of psychological adjustment into dealing with the uh, Italian approach. But in terms of of uh, output, um, he hit the ground running. And I've got one suggestion for that. And. It, it's a debate that will never be be um, resolved, but but amongst sort of the the, the great number tens, um, obviously Maradona, Zidane, um, there are others we could come come up with, Cruyff, uh, Bernd Schuster, uh, plenty plenty more. We either call them number tens or playmakers or whatever you want to to call it. Did he have an extra? Arrow in his quiver, in that he was almost certainly, I think, the best header of a ball amongst any of those guys. And does that lift him from kind of 15 goals a season that you might get with penalties and free kicks and late arrivals into the box to to 20? Because he was a tremendous header of a ball, not a particularly tall man, but his time was superb and you allied that to the, the late runs and the instinctive qualities of finding space in a box and he, he got more headed goals I would guess than, than certainly any of those other uh, pretenders to the title of um, the world's greatest player yeah it's a good point I can see him <coughs> I can't even remember who it was against because he scored so many goals they blow into one but I can see him scoring a, a brilliant twisting header in uh, Euro 84 might be against yeah. Yugoslavia maybe Belgium but anyway yeah I think it's a good point um and that probably is why he scored so many. I mean, he really was so prolific. More uh, better than one in two in league football throughout his career. Um, yeah, I, I suppose. I mean, obviously, you could do anything, but I, I think I associate more than anything with just um, the way he kind of manipulated the ball. I know it sounds a bit pretentious, but but I think it does apply to. But I found actually there's a lovely old quote from Richie Benno on the batting of Sir Frank Worrell, which I every time I read, it, I think of Platini as well. It says. Um, when he batted, he was rarely boorish enough to hit the ball. Occasionally, he stroked it, but mostly he caressed it. And I kind of feel like with Platini, he was rarely boorish enough to actually kick the ball. Um, <clears throat> he just had this lovely, lovely grace about his play. Yes, he was a, a man for the, the 
free kick that went over or round the wall rather than kind of through it. And uh, yeah, he he often had that that grace on the field. I was going to raise this at the end, but I'll raise it now. I I thought he had a a kind of aesthetic quality. I mean, I think the Juventus stripes helped. But he just looked like a kind of beautiful example of a human being. I'm <laughs> beginning to sound like sort of Brendan Brendan Rogers impersonation by uh, Darren Fardy. He's a beautiful human being, but um, but he he really did have a, a kind of grace, as all the the most gifted of sports stars have. It comes from the the balance, but the floating over the ground. But there was a maybe we're just. Maybe I'm just projecting it, but there was there was almost a kind of French insouciance that was overlaid on it that you almost had to make it look easy because it was through making it look easy that he got his um, his his thrill of 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 exploring his talent. Um, Mike, you're going to speak more about the Euros in in '84, but do you want to just lead us into that great French side of the World Cup in '82, of which he was the uh, the leader. Uh, yeah, and I think there's, <clears throat> excuse me, I think there's definitely something in what you say about the insouciance, the, the just the way he looked, you know, often with his socks rolled down, yeah, his shirt hanging out, his hair was all over the place, he was unshaven, he had that kind of hangdog expression. <laughs> he just, um, he just looked very different to everyone else on the pitch, um, as well as played different. But um, yeah, the way that team came together in '82, I mean, they they lost to England in their opening game. Uh, uh, three one, the famous you know Brian Robson goal where he scores after twenty seven seconds, and their their team sort of found itself in that tournament in a way. He played with Alan Jerez and John Tigana, uh, the two Bordeaux midfielders. For the the first time, the three of them started together was the the second round game with Northern Ireland, which they won four one. Um, they played really well. Michel Hidalgo, who'd been the French manager for six years at that point, said it was the best performance under his reign. And then from there, they then went and had that epic semi-final with West Germany, um, the three-all in Seville, uh, you know, with the penalties and with Schumacher's challenge on uh, Batistan. And they had not just one foot in the final, but one and a half feet in the final at, uh, at 3-1 in extra time. And it got away from them. And this was only, uh, I think it was either three or four days after Brazil had gone out of the uh, the World Cup to Italy. So it was like this double whammy for beautiful football that week. You know, Brazil went out and then a few days later, Italy went as well. But um, they regrouped from there. They hosted the Euros in 84. And I, th- I think it's in January 84 um, that Luis Fernandes combined with that midfield for the first time. And that's um, that became then what they called the Car Magique, the Magic Square. Uh, one of the greatest midfields in, well, certainly in the national history, certainly one of the best that I've um, ever seen. And it, it just it just worked. It was um, a midfield with a variety of different threats and talents in it, but just managed to elevate itself collectively to something uh greater and I think France they won all their internationals in 1984 they won 12 out of 12 and I think Platini scored something like 13 goals and yeah the Euros nine goals in five games um can I just stop you there nine goals in five games yeah (laughs) I don't think he gets enough credit for that you know maybe it's because it wasn't a world cup so it's but when we talk about 
I mean, I still think Maradona in 86 is kind of the ultimate peak of football, mm. but nine goals, and also with the pressure of being hosts and everything else. Um, yeah, that's all, I, that's all I've got to say. Well, we, we just... We'll Sorry, a, I, a, I didn't mean to interrupt, Mike. I've just wanted to stress. No. Because mm. I, I, I want to come to 84. Um, we should point out that those nine goals in five games included not one, but two perfect hat-tricks, which is mm. just crazy isn't it underlining that point yeah. that perhaps he had just a, a one or two quivers in his uh in his uh one or two arrows in his quiver i should say uh, also um if i could just say sorry sorry gary quickly well, um he also in the semi-final he settled one of the greatest games of the modern era with a, a goal in the last minute and that that's another feature of him as well that kind of clutch gene that he's got um yeah you know to decide games particularly late on as well i mean there's so many instances of him doing that well, I, I just wanted to say one thing because it struck me at the time, believe it or not. I mean, I was what nineteen in um, in eighty two, and I remember the the Batistone, uh, Schumacher, and I, I don't know where I was watching it. Whether I was watching it with friends or or at home, um, but we didn't see we didn't see what had happened in in real time, so to speak. And then when the um, when the replay went back, and I think uh, John Motson or someone is saying, and Schumacher really has uh, has come out there, and and yeah, Bassistone has has been uh, laid out, uh, injured here. We sort of we sort of looked at each, each other because we couldn't quite work out what had happened. Why why first of all had he done that, and then secondly, why was there no free kick and sending off and all of this? It seemed like it was. In an alternate universe, and then of course we we then kind of got scared because in those days there was no sort of um, worrying about viewers' feelings. The camera just stayed on a on man who was clearly out sparco concussed, while players, uh, French players, are arguing for a, a, a foul and for a card. Schumacher sort of off off um, stalking about, realizing what he'd done. Um, all in the cauldron of uh, a World uh, a World Cup um, semi-final. But one thing struck me, and it struck me quite hard, and, and funny, it does come back to mind times today, is that Platini was the, the captain and the leader of that French side. And you see him when, when Batistone is, is being carried off unconscious, is that Platini holds his hand all the way to the touchline. And... I felt that was a very kind of human gesture. It was, mm. it was, the the work of a, a a leader, the work of someone who understood that at that point there was a personal element to that leadership as well as the as the um, as the kind of technical side or as the the man on the field. And he held Batistone's hand. And when I, I watched this documentary, it was just a brief clip of it. And it wasn't something that I'd sort of misremembered. You you see him holding his hand really quite tenderly as a, a kind of parent would a would a child. And I, I, I remember thinking that at the time, you know, that's what that's what a leader does. That's what that's what you have to do if you want to ha have the kind of uh, moral authority. Uh, and what effect that must have had on his players. I mean, the the lovely punchline would be, you know, he he, he roused his his. Uh, his players to a glorious win, but um, West Germany being West Germany, uh, they didn't really do that then, and it was them that that went through. But it was a, it was a, a mark of the man. And I have to say that I, I 
consistently gave him the benefit of the doubt right to the end at, at UEFA because I wanted to believe that this the man who held Batistone's hand and the man who who embodied a, 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 a beautiful way of playing football and, and was himself a vision on the field, couldn't be wrapped up in these things. But alas, the evidence goes the other way. But um, Mike, you, you wrote a, an excellent piece at Eurosport um, on the Euros in, in 84. I mean, how, how dominant was Platini? Uh, was he even more dominant than, you know, as Rob has pointed out, Maradona in 86? Um. That's an interesting debate with Maradona, I think. I mean, he, um, what's the best way to put this, I suppose? Um, yeah, it, it, I would put it second in terms of, you know, dominant performances by an individual player in my lifetime at an international tournament. I would put it just behind Maradona. I mean, statistically, obviously, it's overwhelming, nine in five. I mean, well, that's just absurd, really, isn't it? I mean, he had, he had seven goals before they got... Uh, before they got out of the group stages. And I think there's an added layer of um, mystique to it in this country because it wasn't um, televised until the semi-final stages, I don't think. So I think the first live game people would have seen in England would have been the the Portugal game, the semi-final. Um, but he, yeah, he was brilliant. He was the focal point of that midfield, that team, that attack. You know, I've seen extended highlights of most of those games. You can see, even, even with players, you know, like Jerez, um and Tigana and Rosto, that they look for Platini all the time. You know, he's just, just involved in everything. Um, my abiding image of him from that tournament is the amount of times he would, he would run past the midfield and, you know, into forward positions. He would just streak through the centre of the pitch you know, like some bolt of lightning or something, and then invariably, like a duress or or someone would um would pick him out of the pass. He was so um I don't know, just so dynamic in that tournament. You got you got the sense he was the one who was really dragging France to um, towards the title. I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah, it you can't understate how how much his performances in that tournament were so integral to France winning it. I think I think they scored fourteen. Gold in the whole tournament, yeah, you know, and he he's nine. got nine of them. None of their centre forwards scored, I don't think, until Bruno Ballon scored um, in the last minute in the final to seal the victory. So not not only did he take on the responsibility of you know being the captain and you know the midfielder and all of that, he took on the responsibility for scoring the goals that won them it as well. So, uh, I mean, Rob, yeah. do we? Did we? I don't recall that we talked about um, players finding space between the lines, but he was he was very much. I mean, you could probably say the same of, of Maradona or even Zidane as well, uh, uh, as a player who seemed to to pick up that space between a midfield and a, a a back four. And there must be lots of players who do this, but I think we remember these greats because the way in which they use it. You know, the head goes up. Um, they carry the ball, they play the killer pass, and they do it so often and in clutch situations that it raises them above uh, other players who have, and there always has been players who you know who who played off a main striker or it was a big man and a small man. But I I seem to, th- in my memory, he was the the player more than than any other that I can recall who played in the middle and found his space. Uh, between the lines, is that is that something that uh, that's defensible? 
<laughs> it's always defensive if it comes out of your mouth, Gary. Um, yeah, probably the, t- the two from that era come to mind, him and Zico. Ah, um, uh, yes. And yes. it's just an intelligence to them as well. I always remember soonest when Flamengo routed Liverpool in the Intercontinental Cup and he said, um, I couldn't get close enough to Zico to kick him. Um, yeah. And we've, we had the pleasure of talking to Klaus Bergren for the mm. De- Denmark book. And he was actually man-marking Platini. Um in the first game, and he kind of ran us through some of the little tricks Platini would do to lose him, and and you got a real sense of just how incredibly smart he was, as well as being brilliant on the ball, just smart at finding space, manipulating a marker. Um, yeah, it always makes me laugh when you see these like, all-time 11s and Platini's in central midfield, uh-huh. usually with someone like Maradona. <laughs> you think that's just yes. not realistic at all. They played so much further and forward. Sudan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> Zidane as a holding player. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, the, the, the setup in particular with France was perfect because they had not one but two workers in Tigonat and Fernandez. Uh, it just allowed him and Giras to play. But he, yeah, I mean, as we said, his goal record was brilliant. But it's partly because uh, people say from midfield, and it wasn't quite that really. Um, he almost plays. I mean, it's a more common position now. I think you're right. Think of, um, I suppose, in what we now think is a four-two-three-one. He has that kind of that's Bruno Fernandes type role. I know they played differently, but he was that kind of influential as an attacking player. Um, so I think that's sometimes forgotten. He's almost thought of as just another central midfielder, but it's not really true. I mean, everything was geared around him, particularly France, but also Juventus. Um, and with that comes a great responsibility as well, you know. Um, but as you both said, he was mentally strong enough to deal with it. And um, yeah, pretty much always in that four-year period, very rarely let them down. Well, I, I, I want to um, just bring the discussion to, to a close because we, we, we will move on to France 98, the second part of our uh, discussion. Um, but it's a, it's a point um, that you make, Mike, in, the, in that article you wrote for Eurosport, about Platini's role in um, really reviving uh, the European Championships and, and raising them to the kind of level which is obviously a step below the World Cup, but it's serious stuff. It's uh, it's a championship which is uh, which is highly uh, valued, and it's a, a prestige tournament. And you know that wasn't always the case, but. But Euro '84 really um, took up what had been a, a bit of a, a kind of hodgepodge of different formats and players opting out on occasion and dull tournaments and and gave absolutely everything to to a home nation, but also um, created the, the kind of mystique that uh, that all tournaments need. Do you want to expand on that? Yeah, I mean, so Euro 84, I mean, the first thing, I think UEFA finally sorted out the format of it into mm. something, um, I don't know, that just worked better and you could engage with more. You know, they had a group stage and then semi-finals and then the final. Uh, the one prior to this, the 1980 European Championship in <laughs> Italy, had just stank the place out. I mean, it, it was Whoa, dreadful, really under-attended, you know, problems with hooliganism with England there. Um a kind of quite a memorable um, final, really, you know, not a lot of great teams in it. Um, this one, I think it was really open. Um, you had the emergence of that great French team. You had Denmark as well. Uh, you had a lot of high-profile casualties in qualifying. Um, you know, Italy didn't make it. They were the world champions. Uh, the USSR weren't there. 
the Dutch England. Because um, we should point out, but, Mike, that it was just two groups of four. There were. There, mm. This is why we were saying nine goals in five games, because it was as brutal as that. Eight nations there. There were fewer European nations, of course, before the break of the Soviet Union, but. Um, it was it was tough enough to get there, and then once you were there, every match was was a a crunch match, and then semi-finals and, and finals. So there was no chance to breathe in this tournament. No, and yeah, I, um, people might think eight teams is a bit small for a tournament, and of course it is. But um, I think at that point there was something like because of the you know the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia, there were thirty-two teams in UEFA then, so everything kind of divided down perfectly. You know. I'd, you had the groups of four for qualifying, then you went down to eight, and you just kind of drilled it down to two, and it just it felt like the right size um, and the right fit. But I mean, you can't establish a tournament um, of any kind, really. I mean, you, you have to provide you know the moments that people remember that make people want to come back next time. And um, yeah, Puccini certainly did that in in eighty four. It's it's probably uh, well, so certainly is I think still the most. Um, iconic performance ever at a European Championship by one player. Yeah, I mean, I think younger listeners may be amazed to hear this, but my recollection was pretty much that the the Euros were a bit of a kind of shoulder shrug from, from England. We'd never won it, and it was the home internationals, uh, particularly the England-Scotland game, which was the kind of biggest game of the summer, if it was not a World Cup summer. And, um, I mean, England didn't play very well in a dreadful tournament in 1980 but um there wasn't the kind of uh, there wasn't the kind of television coverage there certainly wasn't the same kind of media uh, interest anything like it of course that there is now but also there wasn't the the emotional investment either you know if you won the euros well you won the euros but you know who who won the last one who won in 76 probably west germany but nobody could remember exactly you're going to tell me it was czechoslovakia now with a penenka or something like that but even even now um i still can't immediately recall who won the Euros in, in uh, 1976 in the way that one can obviously recall who won the World Cup in 74 and 78. So I think we've got much to um, thank Platini for uh, in, in doing that because by the time Euro 88 came a- around, um, it was it was not small potatoes. It was, uh, it was a, a big, big deal. Um, Rob, have you anything to finish off on, on Platini? Nothing whatsoever. <laughs> No, <laughs> <laughs> no. I just I I don't really have much else to say. Uh, I think you covered it very very well. Yeah, it I would seems... I would just sorry go on. Oh, let's just say it just seems seems bonkers that the there must be quite a few people around now. Says oh yeah, I remember when Napoli played Juventus. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, Platini scored a couple of uh, of goals. One a header, one a free kick, and and I think Maradona was uh, was on an off day. Um, he did get a a, a late. Uh, a late uh, goal, but um, you know Juventus ran out winners. Yeah, people will just talk about that having Platini and uh, Maradona on the same pitch in a league game. <laughs> just crazy. Go on, Mike. Uh, well, we'll just end on. I mean, I do wonder if Platini has slightly been airbrushed from history because of uh, the shenanigans that you mentioned um, <laughs> earlier on, Gary. I mean, I think that does play into. The perception with him, the popular perception, I think. I mean, lots of players have gotten to bother, you know, great players during their career, 
after their career. You know, look at Maradona, you know, with um, with cocaine and, you know, with ephedrine yeah. and things like that. But I think the fact that part of the disappointment with Putini is that he went and became a company man. You know, he went to work for UEFA and then he got dragged into that whole, you know, side of it with the FIFA Exco. And I just think that's, that's what a way to introduce your, you know, your standing in the game to do that. Because you... Even with that, you have to reflect on the fact that it's that's just an incredible career. Even if you just took out the years eighty-two to eighty-six, it's uh, you know that that's one of the most astonishing purple patches that that any player could have. I think, but I do think it gets a bit lost in the fact that um, it's just such a crushing disappointment. I think that he got dragged into that. Um, yeah, and I that I, side of things. But. Yeah, and I think the disappointment is enhanced or sharpened, whatever the word is, and I'm sure we might get some comments on um, Twitter about this, <clears throat> in that he was such a romantic figure as well, say visually yeah. uh, and and in terms of playing style and that, you know, the, the Frenchman with an Italian name who went to Italy and uh, played the French game in Italy with an Italian emphasis and all, all of that kind of glamour and romance was was rather taken out of it when you realise that you know in smoke filled rooms there were there were uh, hands being shaken um, that were different to the hands that were being shaken in in public and and so on and you know he's he's not the the worst and nor is he the first of of players or or individuals whose reputation is tarnished um by you know let's face it the world of, of big business which is what it is uh, around there but it it does seem particularly um poignant to to have gone from that from that glorious peak uh, of a particular vision of what football should be to uh, a rather ignominious low of of what it it became so shall we uh, call a halt on that rather uh, sad note? Let's, um, no, no, let, let's all-time end, great player. Let's end on a happier note. If, Go on. If people can be bothered to YouTube them, that Platini scored two of the great nearly goals. Um, so one is for Juventus against, I think it's Argentinos Juniors in the Intercontinental Cup. It was disallowed oh, yeah. for an off, a dodgy offside. It's a fantastic goal. It's worth looking up. The other, which Mike actually was the first person to alert me to this, is in that classic semi-final against West Germany. Um, just before half time, oh, yeah, France is trapped by the corner flag, and they play their way out. And I think Barry doesn't Barry Davis bollock them, Mike, at the start of the move, saying it's a bit over elaborate. But anyway, they go length of the field, and Platini rakes a shot wide, just wide from t- twenty yards. Um, they're both worth looking up. They're just fantastic, particularly the France um, uh, move. Actually, that's probably my f- one of my favourite um, goals that never were. Yeah, Barry yeah. Barry Davis. So they're playing it around on the edge of the box, and he says something like, "Oh, they're playing around with it there," and you know, really kind of disapprovingly. And then you know, ten seconds later, they're just whistling a shot past uh, Schumacher's post. It's a yeah, fantastic bit of play. Yeah, Rose Z was never really a destination for the Magic Square, was it? No. <laughs> And so uh, yeah, we'll, we'll look those those up. If you if you find them, uh, gentlemen, either send them to me or if you could put them up on on Twitter, sort of as part of a, a retweet. Once we've we've got this out in public, I think that would be great. I do recall the second one, not the first one, um, but there's a there's a great pod to be done on on goals that never were, isn't there? Mm. Um, 
You know, the, there's a lot of them around. When you think of Carlos Alberto, who just scuffed that shot. I mean, we say, oh, you know, there was a goal that never was. But, of course, Brazil 1970, he doesn't. Uh, but that's a, another story. So we'll move 28 years from uh, the World Cup of 1970 to, uh, to France in, in 1998, towards the... Uh, end of the uh, envelope of Nesson Dorma's uh, time period. Um, we did the uh, group stages at some length, and I hope you've uh, either heard those, or if you want to go back, then you'll be able to find that wherever you're finding this uh, podcast. But we, we left it um, with the round of 16, and um, we'll, we'll, take you, we'll take you through that now. Uh, gentlemen, have you anything else to say in terms of, of setting up uh, the the knockout stages here. No, not much. Just that Argentina England was obviously a, a humdinger. Um, the rest of the fixtures, I don't think any of them stood out particularly beforehand. Uh, a couple of them turned into really good games, but yeah, I think there was a, just a huge focus on that. You always get, when you get to kind of perceived superpowers in the last sixteen, it's always so tense because it's too early to go out of a World Cup. When you then factor in Argentina and England's history, then obviously it goes to another level. But yeah, we'll get to all that. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna have <laughs> that. Uh, and actually, it was that... the last of the last sixteen games, I think, which kind of heightened the anticipation. We had to had to wait a wee while for it. Yes, indeed. But um, let's start with with uh, a game that looks looks fairly routine on paper, and that's uh, Italy against Norway. You'd expect Italy to win one nil, and Italy did win one nil. Um, with uh, Australian-Italian Christian Vieri's fifth goal in the in the four matches. Mike, do you want to say a few words? Um, yeah, I think what you say there is they, they won this kind of matter-of-factly, really. Um, they scored really early on. I think they scored uh, 18 minutes, Vieri scores after. Um, sort of a ball down the side, which he just runs through into the box and then uh, shoots into the bottom corner Um Worth saying, I think, what a fantastic striker Vieri was. I mean, I, I, I always thought he was. Um, he just offered like, every type of threat you could possibly have, I think. You know, he's, he's good with both feet. He could hold it up. He can head it. He's really quick as well, especially when he was younger. Um, he just must have been an absolute nightmare to play against. And it's, it's, he got five goals at the, the following World Cup as well. I think his record's 9-9 nine <clears> and nine at the World Cup. Do you think he's slightly underrated because he never kind of settled at one club? Yeah, he moved every season, didn't he? So yeah. he does. He doesn't belong to any club. He's not really held close to any yeah. club's heart, really. I, I think that's I really important. I think that affects, to a lesser extent, players like Paul Ince and Michael Owen as well in the way they're remembered. But anyway, that's another that's another story. Yeah, I mean, I, I've got a, my take on Vieri is that is similar in some ways in that he was never known for being any one particular thing in the way that you know Rossi was the poacher <coughs> non pare and then you've got you know other center force you know Van Basten was the was the elegance and tall the swan whereas Vieri Vieri looked he looked like an English center forward in in lots of ways I mean I think you know also speaking fairly fluent English which was much rarer then than it is now with um with uh, Italian players uh, overseas players in, in general and you kind of felt there's a kind of familiarity when I watched Vieri that that we kind of see versions of Christian Vieri uh, in English football and leagues and indeed playing for England. Um, you know he was 
he was, I felt in, in lots of ways, he was a little bit like Shearer. He was, as you say, he was good in the air. He was strong. He was, he was quick, but he didn't have a, <coughs> he didn't have a, a USP in the way that, that Rossi had that, that mystique perhaps, or that, um, that, you know, there was Romario with his one-on-ones and his extraordinary sort of, uh, uh, poaching, finishing and so on. Is, is that, is that fair? Yeah, probably it is. Um, yeah, sorry, I was just thinking, my abiding memory of Vieri, which probably isn't a fair reflection of his career, was that row he had with Italian journalists at Euro 2004, do you remember it? So oh, there was some yeah. fuss over the fabric of Italy's the socks. They, they drew nil-nil against someone, I think it was Denmark, and one of the players said it was done to the fabric in their socks. And then Vieri got in a, uh, got in a row at a press conference, and he, I think he said something like, I'm more of a man than all of you. You'll never yeah. know how much of a man I am. <laughs> which is just brilliant. Um, which is which is a very English centre forwards thing to say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But also a very Italian thing. To one say, yeah. one quick note on this game: Paluca makes a brilliant save from Tori Andre Flo at one nil. I mean, yeah. it was weird. It was it was it was comfortable, but but not in a way because obviously one goal, even for Italy, um, there's always that threat. And he, it was a, a brilliant reaction save from a. From a header, close range header. It's funny, isn't it? You get so Norway got into the last sixteen with that famous win over Brazil, possibly the most famous result in their modern history. And then you think, and then that's it. It's over four or five days later. Almost, I don't know. It, it, the suddenness with which teams go out of a World Cup. I know it's completely logical, but it, there's a kind of sadness to it as well that you have such a high and then you just go out with a whimper um, a few days later, and that's it. And it <clears throat> it seems to happen so often. You know, like I think Switzerland in '94 and things like that. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it just seems like a you that whole idea of you know leave it all on the pitch. It feels like so many teams don't do that um, for whatever reason. Yeah, I, I think. I, I think um, go, go on. Sorry, like it just if it just yeah. come in on Rob's point. Then there's a really interesting point. I think it's in Roy Keane's first autobiography where um, he talks about USA '94 and when the Republic of Ireland beat Italy. Mm. It's some, he says something like, um, it felt like the tournament was over at that point because mm. they got their one big result. They'd scalped one of the superpowers, you know, in the first round. Mm. And it's almost like, well, we've got the memory from the tournament now. Yeah. You know, we, we, you know we, we've got the thing, that, you know, that will carry forever. And it's, um, and, you know, he being, you know, the, the, <laughs> yeah. ultimate, the ultimate pro and the winner, you know, just said, well, why can't we go on and try and, you know, win this whole thing? And, um, that's maybe a, a mentality thing, maybe a difference between, you know, teams that do regularly get to semi-finals and finals of World Cups and yeah, I think that's you know, a maybe point. a team like Norway. I mean, you know, and I wonder if the, the game four years earlier played into this a little bit as well. Because Norway oh, yes, yes. had Italy at the USA 94 World Cup. They had them down to 10 men. They could have knocked them out of the tournament and they just, they didn't go for it. It's more like they went for the point that would have secured them yeah. Passage through to the next round rather than the actual victory. Um, so it's a, a bit of a belief thing as well. Maybe they, they just didn't believe that they could beat them. I think Italy aren't Italy the only team to beat Norway at a World Cup, and they've done it three times. I think. It sounds about right because yeah. they can't have been at many World Cups, no, uh, Norway no. certainly not before the expansion. So um, that's that's likely to be true. I mean, I just say one one thing is that is. There is a sense of of kind of is that it when a, a team gets knocked out because you know games especially these days are are built up and all of a sudden in in ninety minutes and sometimes it's long before the ninety minutes you know you realise that that the investment that you've made in in these players or in this team 
um, is all going to sort of disappear uh, because they've gone. But there's no match that's surely more useless than the Golden Boot playoff, which is the <laughs> third and fourth uh-huh. place match. Because um, I don't know about you, but it, it just, to me, that is, you know, a, a kind of backdoor in a, in a tournament Um it's not really a backdoor. It's not really like a, a kind of playoffs, but it is a, a way to see the players for for a last hurrah. But I don't know about you, but I I, I can barely recall even watching a third and fourth place playoff because no. it, it, it's it's the antithesis of what a knockout tournament is. Get is rid. For. The other thing is, and yeah, I know it's crap to watch, but it must also be crap to play. When, when oh, you've been knocked out of a World Cup, yeah. all you want to do. Is just get home basically to have to hang around three or four more days. Sod that. No, I think it's, I would get rid of it definitely. Yeah, I mean, with the kind of money that gets spent now on golden boots and the kind of contempt with which third and fourth place playoffs to hell, there must be some kind of concern that there might be some sort of irregular betting patterns on on players getting sort of penalties and golden boots being awarded because a golden boot is, is worth having and it's. It's better. Well, there are some cheap goals in third and fourth no. place playoffs, and who who could tell? Who could tell? Because you know, if if, if teams are off off colour, and you know they are playing uh, reserves and and mystery injuries and so on, you'd never be able to tell in a third and fourth place playoff, would you? My fa- uh, my favourite one of these actually was from um, USA '94 when Bulgaria played Sweden. Um, and Sweden won four nil, and the, the Bulgarian team had quite clearly down tools, <laughs> ex- except Risto Stoichkov because he he was on six goals, and he he needed one more to get the golden boot outright. So he's he's running round and kind of berating his teammates, <laughs> saying, "Put some effort in, get me a chance." And they're like, "Well, you know, we're, we're just on holiday already. Really. We're just going through the motions here." So. Yeah. Yeah, uh, indeed, on their way to New Orleans or something. Mm. Uh, indeed. Well, let's let's move on to um, um, uh, the aforementioned uh, Brazil, and it's another kind of result that you look at and you think, well, you know, that's how it happens, isn't it? So it's it's Brazil for uh, Chile, as I still call them, although I'm, increasingly I'm hearing the American pronunciation of Chile. If it's Chile, why not spell it Chile? But uh, Chile won. Uh, Rob, do you want to have a start with that one? Yeah, as you say, um, pretty comfortable, really. They scored early again. Cesar Sampao, who's one of the holding players, got two from set pieces. He also got one against Scotland. Can't be too many holding midfielders. We've got three World Cup goals in one tournament. Um, yeah, it was just an easy win, really. I mean, I, I suppose what I would say is that with hindsight, there are signs that Brazil are vulnerable defensively. I mean, kind of didn't pick up at the time, but I think they only kept one clean sheet in the tournament. Um, and even here, Chile got one, and I think they could have got a couple more. But there was never any threat, really. Um, <clears throat> I think there were three up at half-time. Ronaldo looked very lively, scored two, hit the post of the bar. Um, <clears throat> yeah, at that point, he was the most exciting player in the world, easily. Well, not easily, actually, I suppose. You could argue Michael Owen was, but that's another story. Um yeah, just a, just a, again another of those last sixteen games where I mean Chile did were quite lucky to qualify, didn't even win a game. There was an iffy uh, disallowed goal, but it's funny because I still have quite strong memories of them in that tournament, purely because of Zamorano and Salas. 
even though you look back and think, well, actually, essentially did bugger all. They didn't win a game in a fairly easy group apart from Italy. And um, and yeah, and it's just, you, know, you always get this. I mean, even in 2010, Chile were a better team then and they got, I think they got hammered by Brazil uh, in the last 16. It's just, I think you're right. I think there is something in the subconscious of a lot of these teams who just think, well, that, that's it now. We've, we've done our thing and we're not kind of entitled to go any further. Yeah, kind of a reverse entitlement, isn't it? Really, that, yeah. Uh, mm. that, that I know, I know it well, <laughs> <laughs> Mike. Uh, yeah, not a lot to add, really. I mean, um, yeah, three up at half time. I, I, I had a bit of hope for this game in that you know Salas and Zamorano. That's a the hell of a front two, isn't it? But uh, yeah, shall we go out the World Cup without winning a game? I remember there being an air at the time of. I think because people bought in so heavily to the the marketing blitz by Nike or Nike or whatever you're supposed to call them, um, of who, who can actually beat Brazil, <laughs> who's going to beat Brazil, like who will be able to take them down. So to see them just swat aside one of their continental rivals like this is um, this is maybe their best performance in the World Cup. Brazil and Ronaldo was brilliant in this game, um, as Rob says, scores twice, hit the post, hit the bar. Um, a mate of mine was at at this game, um, and he, he he still raves about it now. You know how good uh, how good Ronaldo was that day. But um, yeah, one of those um, kind of victories that a team of Brazil's stature tends to have at this stage. It's just uh, you know they just very very matter of factly get the job done and move through to the quarterfinals. I suppose you're right. Actually, if if, if one nil is the kind of matter of fact result for Italy, then. 3-0 or 3-1 or 4-1 is for Brazil, which I suppose yeah. actually shows how good they often are, even though we don't think of this as one of the great Brazilian sides. They're still able to win 4-1 without really mm. getting out of second gear. Yeah, I, I, I remember being slightly resentful is probably the wrong word, but you know, it sort of left a slight bitter taste in the in the mouth for me with the, the kind of Nike stuff and what, how, how do you say it in in Portuguese? Is it Jugada Bonita, the beautiful game? Uh, is it Jugo? Oh, is it Joga Bonita? Yeah, something, something like that. Because although I I have memories of of nineteen seventy and obviously the the great side and we've 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 seen them. Um, my uh, first real exposure to Brazil was that dreadful side in nineteen seventy four, <laughs> who were mm-hmm. just absolute thugs, terrible and thuggish, and and yeah, they were an anti Brazil. So even even today, um, living through Brazilian sides, both pragmatic and uh, and uh, gloriously uh, romantic, um, I still sort of you know suck on a thoughtful tooth whenever the the great tradition of Brazilian. Uh, football gets raised, particularly when it gets raised in a in a kind of pseudo um, a kind of pseudo legendary sense, you know, for advertising purposes. Because there've been plenty of sides. The '94 side, I, I think, were, were very pragmatic, um, even though they won and they did have Romario. Um, the, uh, the yeah, uh, Brazil for Chile won fits in with the kind of Nike narrative, but there's been plenty of uh, Brazil won Chile uh, nil as well, I think, along the, along the way. But that's a, another story. One of the results that probably hasn't happened too often uh, in the past uh, was France won Paraguay nil, which was um, the first sort of uh, thriller. And, uh, as Mike, as you point out, uh, another first for the World Cup. 
Uh, yeah, World, World Cup's first ever golden goal. Um, scored by Laurent Blanc, who, you know, it's a, a spectacular high for him, uh, which uh, be followed by a spectacular low about uh, a week and a bit um, later. Yeah. But yeah, I remember this game just being brutally tense. Because, do, you want to, uh, do you want to just explain what the golden goal was? Because there's a whole generation that won't know what the golden goal is. Yeah, so a brief, I think, six-year experiment by um, by FIFA um, to sort out extra time. It was basically to try and avoid penalties. The the idea of the golden goal is so it's it's a goal that as soon as it goes in an extra time, the game's over. Whoever scores it wins. Yeah, um, walk off home run. Imagine they call them in. Yeah, like winning goal or you know. Imagine whatever, the uh, golden goal in the age of VAR. Fucking hell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, but. In a lot of cases, and we saw this at Euro '96, where it had it had its first um, its first big airing. That it actually worked in uh, in the opposite way into which it was intended. You know, teams became so frightened of conceding it that they yeah. actually played uh, more defensively. I mean, uh, with, with the uh, the honourable exception of England and Germany in that Euro '96 semi final, uh, where they both just went for it, it often led to more um, defensive football. So. Um, yeah, very tense afternoon, brutally hot. It's in quite a small stadium. Was it in Lille this game? I can't remember. Um, I can't quite remember where they played it. Um, Lons. France, Lons, sorry, yeah. Um, France had uh, Zidane. He was still suspended for this game because he'd been sent off against um, Saudi Arabia. I should just say, actually, the flip side to what was going on with the whole Nike stuff was. Um, Adidas were all over this World Cup as well. Yeah, um, they'd not long launched the Predator boots, so they'd signed up Zidane um, and Beckham and Del Piero, I think, as well. Um, and that that was something we'd not seen at a World Cup before. I think that kind of corporate blitz of uh, advertising of you know you know the Nike adverts that felt like they're on the Brazil advert every commercial break. Um, the Adidas ones about the Predators, they were caked in, you know, magazines and newspapers and everything like that. I think that was a real difference with this World Cup compared to to ones that have gone before. But, um, yeah, France just about uh, got through this. Schilliver, the Paraguayan goalkeeper, had uh, had a really good game um, and was absolutely heartbroken when um, when he let in Blanc's goal and he's this uh, kind of poignant shots of him being helped up and inconsolable in tears uh and france uh they probably utilized their squad at this tournament more than any of the other teams did um you see this a lot more in modern world cups now but um this, this so this is the first world cup where you could have three subs in one game um, i think they brought on um robert perez and alan bogosian and i i think well perez certainly was anyway they're both involved in the uh in the move that set the uh the winning goal for Blanc and yeah, as I say, great moment for him, Blanc. But um, yeah, there was a there was a very low moment in the post for him as well, unfortunately. I I had to I had to sort of look up where well I knew where Paraguay was. I had a sense that it was sort of in the middle of South America, 
But whether the country was sort of the, the size of Wales or three times the size of Wales, which is always, of course, the unit of area used by tabloids all the time I was growing up, and how, how you know what its capital was and how many people lived there. I mean, I just had an idea that that Paraguay was a, a, a few sort of Amazonian tribes and Klaus Kinski trying to pull an opera house up a up a, mm. a, a, a mountainside for uh, for Werner Herzog shouting through a megaphone. Um, I mean, Paraguay was was a very very um, remote place of which one heard almost nothing because it didn't seem to have the kind of earthquakes that Chile had and and everything else. So it it was a it was a case that we didn't really know anything about this. And Chilever became the kind of figurehead because of his shooting and his goals record, and he was larger than life. And goalkeepers used to wear those those shirts that looked like you've been at the fairground and been spraying paint on one of those revolving turntables and stuff like that so he was he was kind of the the icon of a, a paraguayan side and um we learned a lot in paraguay subsequently went to quite a few uh world cups but um but there was kind of nothing known about paraguay uh, uh, at that time uh rob anything to add um yeah just uh, Chilever, obviously the personality uh, who stood out, but they had a brilliant central defender, Carlos Gamara, mm. who um, made the all-star squad that FIFA picked. Chris Freddy in his World Cup history, which I can't recommend highly enough, says that he was possibly the best central defender in the world at that time. Um, the other thing about Chilever, didn't he, once he got up, didn't he then go around picking all the team up as well? Basically saying, you know, we've done ourselves proud and everything. Yeah. Maybe yeah. I've misremembered that, but I, that always um, <clears throat> stuck in my mind. But yeah, I mean... Like you said, they were, they were essentially quite a defensive side, but um, but they got so close to penalties. And, and as Mike said, it was just so tense, as it always is when the hosts reach the knockout stage because, you know, at any point, that could be it. One false move and the whole thing collapses, particularly with a golden goal. But, um, yeah, a, a, a nice moment for Blanc, one of the great goal-scoring defenders, of course. Um, I think this came in open play, didn't it? Um as well. Yeah, it's it's nodded a, down for him. And, um, yeah, he's yeah, got a lot of yeah. goals in open play as well as uh, penalties. So, yeah, no, that's, that, that's it, isn't he? Oh, and I, yeah, think, I, th- I think Liverpool legend Bernard Diamed started this game, which again yeah. is um, reinforces your point about the squad. I wonder in part, is that simply because they were still searching for something up front? Because um, they didn't really, you know, they had Givash and Omri was young, Trezeguet was young. Mm. Um, they, were, they were constantly searching for the right um, combination. Uh, but, yeah, they got through. But, That's all that matters. Yeah, I always think this is such an awkward um, game for the host at this stage because you, you can't... Well, generally, if you're, if you're a host that's got a shot at winning the World Cup, you're expected to get through the group stage, and you do. But I think in the back of your mind, it would be such a, a devastating disappointment to go out at the start of the second round. But if yeah. you can get through it, then you can start to build momentum in the knockout stages then. I, I remember a similar level of tension in the, the 2014 World Cup when Brazil and Chile went to penalties. Yes. Um, that shootout, oh, that was unbearably tense. That, mm. um, and they just about got... But the relief of getting through games like that just kind of propels you forward, I think. Then. Yeah, you're right. It's unthinkable, isn't it? If you're a host yeah. like, so with a shot of winning, it's unthinkable to go out in the last 16. 
Yeah, you're kind of halfway up the stair, as the <laughs> uh, as the Muppet song has it, because you you're neither one thing nor another. You you've you. You, you, you read headlines saying that the host of the tournament really starts here, and you know, as a player, you must look at that and think, well, all of that, you know, <laughs> pressure and emotional investment getting through the group stage, we we've got that, but now we've got to sort of start again. And I think for the hosts more than anyone else, as you say, because there's the expectation that they're they're going to be in and around the end game, that they almost have to have to deal with two separate tournaments and go through the emotional kind of preparation and, and turmoil of, of dealing with a, a fresh start. But they did. And, um, you know, as you say, it, it, it's tense. And that's why we watch sport. We watch sport because it matters. And it shows how it matters in these, in these tense matches. Um, a match that we were probably looking forward to almost more than any other, I certainly remember thinking, God, this will be a belter, was Nigeria against Denmark. Um, but it didn't quite turn out that way. Um, Rob, do you want to start us on that one? Yeah, Denmark thrashed Nigeria 4-1, and Nigeria with a big kind of hope. Everyone wanted an African team to do well, but uh, they were just all over the show. Um, Denmark were a decent side, actually. They had both Laudrup's. Um, Peter Moller scores a brilliant goal in the third minute, just kind of f- flick dry over the outside of his left foot. Um but yeah, Nigeria was just a bit of a mess, really. Like, goalkeeper was a fault for a couple of the goals. Um, 2 0 down at half time, 4 0 down before they got a, barely a consolation. Um, Ebe Sandals has scored a really good goal after, I think it had only been on about 30 seconds. Laudrup did one of his scoop passes, Sand headed it inside to Rebo West and um, volleyed it in. But um, yeah, I think there was a, a, sense, a big sense of disappointment because there was so much goodwill towards Nigeria. Um, but I think it's a slightly unfair to Denmark who, I mean, some of the defending was poor, but Denmark did play some really nice stuff as well. Um, and I don't know what else to say. Well, it, it was more than just doing a job on them because they got ahead and then stayed ahead. But um, the disappointment is that Nigeria have been such freewheeling entertainers and never really got going in this game. They so say you're 2 0 down after 12 minutes. How do you get going? But um, it, it wasn't that, because that, there's always been a lot of goodwill towards um, it's, uh, Denmark, but it, it wasn't that people were anti Denmark. I think you. Sorry, I think you're right in saying that. that you know, we, we just wondered whether this was the, the World Cup in which Pele's uh, inevitable um, tapes of him saying that an African team will win the, the World Cup, uh, whether this was going to come come true. And and um, they obviously Africa has provided semi-finalists. I'm, I'm pretty sure they have provided semi-finalists, but there's yet to be an African finalist. But it felt like there was a bit of a... A great sort of emerging romantic story that that got nipped in the bud by um by an efficient Denmark team that still went went quite as exciting as their their forebears in uh, in eighty six. Uh, Mike, anything to add? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, actually, an African team hasn't been to the semis yet. Um, the quarterfinals, oh. as far as they've got. Well, that that was one of the. Uh, Really, wow. additional reasons that uh, Luis Suarez was demonised for punching that um, ball yeah. off the line against Ghana because you know if Ghana would, if that had gone in, um, you know Ghana would have been in the semi-finals. Um, but uh, 
Yeah, I just concur with a lot of what Rob said, really. Denmark, they're a really well-organised side in this World Cup. Um, I mean, yes, they had the loud-ups, but uh, Thomas Helweg in midfield and Alan Nielsen, who later went on to Tottenham, um, worked well as a kind of really nice uh, axis in the centre of that side. Um, what what happened with Nigeria here, part of this collapse, is often attributed to... Um, apparently, there was a huge row about um, bonuses in the uh, camp that they'd been promised for getting through to the the knockout stages, which then weren't delivered or were reneged upon. So that there was, um, I don't, I don't know the complete ins and outs of this, but there is, uh, there's rumour to have been a huge um, blow up about that on the eve of the game, which um, might have played into the result as well. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, you, that shouldn't detract from what Denmark did. And, and you know, speaking of getting the furthest you've ever done in the World Cup, uh, Denmark getting to the quarterfinals, that, that's the furthest Denmark have ever got in a World Cup. So they actually, they went one better um, than the, the great Denmark team of 86. Okay, so um, speaking of results that uh, look somewhat expected, uh, Germany 2, Mexico 1. And uh, the two old men of the side, although I don't think Olivier Bierhoff was that old. He always he was one of those players who I think looked sort of twenty eight when he was eighteen, so maybe that didn't help. But goals from uh, Klinsmann and, and Bierhoff, late goals, inevitably uh, bringing Germany back into this match. So, um, Mike, I think uh, you're setting us off on this one. Yeah, well, Mexico blew this really. Um... They scored first in the game. Scored a really nice goal um, by Luis Hernandez, who uh, had a decent tournament. I think he got three goals um, at France '98. And then uh, after that, um, they got they got uh, Germany on the break, hit the post, and then uh, Hernandez had a chance from uh, six yards out when it was squared to him, right in the centre of goal, and he just completely mistimed the finish. And sort of tapped it straight into the arms of the goalkeeper, which would have been uh, 2-0. And the way the game was going, probably unassailable. But um, yeah, Germany, at that point, they went more direct. um, Started pumping balls into the box. uh, One of which broke to Klinsmann, who equalised. And then with a kind of inevitability, uh, Oliver Bierhoff um, headed in the winner with uh, four minutes to go. I think I think Bierhoff would have been 32 at this tournament because he he got capped very late for uh, Germany. He got called up for Euro 96 after... Um, he had a really sort of odd career trajectory in that um, he was playing for Udinese in Serie A and they were in Serie B, I think, when uh, he was top scorer that season. And then he got, I think he, I can't remember where he transferred to after that. But, was it um, Milan? Milan it was, yeah, of course. Um, and yeah, he, he didn't make his, yeah, he didn't make his debut for Germany until he was, um, until he was like 28 or something like that. And then obviously went on to score both the goals in the uh, the final of Euro 96. But this really was, uh, I would say, the last victory in Germany's imperial phase. Um where, where they could just win Germany's the, yeah the, the phrase Germany's imperial phase <laughs> yeah in the, in, <laughs> some, some concern in the context yeah. of uh, the, the football, yes, football um, yeah. but where where they could just win by reputation basically and repetition I mean as soon as Mexico missed that chance it, it's kind of had a historical echo of Mexico 86 um, when Mexico should have put 
uh, West Germany out in the quarterfinals. Uh, they had them down to 10 men um, and they couldn't put them away. And it's uh, yeah, just another great act of World Cup escapology by the, uh, the Germans, you know, from a seemingly defeated position. Uh, they managed to turn the game out, but I mean, they weren't they weren't playing well in this tournament. Like with hindsight now, and if you can kind of um, take their reputation out of it, uh, when you think about it, there there was a defeat in the post, and they were a very old side by this point as well. Um, you know, there's not many young players kicking around this squad. It's I think we mentioned on the last pod. You know, there's, there's still players from you know 1990 kicking around the squad. 82, <laughs> Mateus. Yeah, Mateus. Yeah. Um, so that this was yeah them clinging to their great reputation by their their fingernails, really. But you know they got through. They got the job done. Um, but yeah, Me- Mexico will rue the fact that uh, you know they didn't put them away in this because they really should have done. Yeah, well, by some accounts, you can't write them off. But there they are, uh, Germany doing mm. what the Germans do. Anything to add, Rob? Um, yeah, a couple of things. Beerhoff's winning goal is actually deceptively brilliant. It's like a, a flick header from about 18 yards. And there's no power on the cross. The angle's quite flat, and he steers it into the top corner. It's a really, really good goal. Uh, and the other thing is just to reinforce what Mike said. It's, it's a classic tale, isn't it, of the underdog taking the lead and then missing the big chance and then getting punished. It's just seen it so often, particularly against Germany, but just generally in international tournaments against a bigger nation. Um, there's there's always that what-if moment, it feels like, and Mexico certainly had it. They Mexico added quite a lot to the tournament. It came Twice came from two look down, I think. Hernandez looked very sharp, as uh, as Mike said. Lovely goal here. Like really um, keeps his cool and just dances around the defender in the area. And obviously Blanco's hop, which we um, spoke about last time. So, yeah, they are, obviously it's become a standing joke about Mexico going out in the last 16. But I feel like this is one of the tournaments where they added plenty to the competition. Yeah, Um Mexico. I mean, I wonder if if Mexico look at England and think you know they're a nearly team the way we look at Mexico and think they're a nearly team. I know England have got a, a better record than Mexico, but you, you you just think that that there's there's something about Mexico that that brings them up against tournament old hands, and they and they they never they never quite get over that that historical uh, issue that they have. Um, I don't think Mexico have played in a semi-final, have they? It's um, when you think of the, the the role football plays in the country and the, the size of its population and everything, you would you would expect somewhere for a Mexican side to have, have done that. Of course, twice hosting it as as well, but no. Um, so we'll move to uh, the Netherlands against Yugoslavia. Um, I think. Although we did talk about this in the last pod, um, I was surprised to see Yugoslavia, but um, I was told they played as Yugoslavia in '92. Uh, but um, a country that exists no no more, um, and they existed no more in this uh, in this competition um, as a result of going out to the Dutch. So, uh, Rob, I think you'll set us off on this one. Yeah, the Dutch dodged one here a bit. Um... So they won 2-1 with an injury time goal from Edgar Davids, uh, but both their goals were a bit iffy. Bergkamp probably got away with a foul for the first one. Davids' goal took a couple of deflections, but it was a period at the start of the second half when the game should have got away from the really. Komlienovic, I think, equalised um, from a set piece 
and then Stam gave away a penalty. It was probably a bit harsh when he did shirt pull the guy's shirt, but it felt harsh by the standards of ninety eight. Um, but anyway, Miatovic hit the bar. Then a couple of minutes later, I think I'm not sure exactly certain the chronology, but Bergkamp should, without question, have been sent off for stamping on Miatovic. Um, which is interesting, not only in the context of the game, but obviously it would have meant he was had the Dutch still got through. He would have been suspended for what became um, the defining game of his career. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the Dutch were such a likeable side um, and added so much to the tournament, but they were, yeah, they they got away with it a little bit here. They actually, I forget why, maybe he was still suspended for getting sent off in the first game, but Clive didn't, I think Bergkamp played up front on his own in this game, which never really worked um, with Arsenal, with uh, the Netherlands. Uh, and they looked a much better team when they had Cliver and Bergkamp uh, playing together. But um, yeah, just quite lucky, really. I mean, the Bergkamp incident is fascinating, particularly when you contrast it with... I mean, it was a much more severe offence than the one for which Beckham was sent off against Argentina. Um, and obviously that... Uh, but, you know, Beckham's life became pretty tumultuous as a consequence. And it's interesting that Bergkamp's just forgotten by, you know, a few days later, it's just kind of just another piece of bit of detail, really. Uh, it's just interesting how how arbitrary these things seem. Yeah, you well, think what just... happened to uh, to Blanc as well, you know, missing yes. the World yeah. Final. Uh... It's interesting, actually, just like Bergkamp always had that in him a little bit. Yes, of, I was just going to oh, say. Yeah, a bit yeah, of rage in him. Exact <laughs> um, mm. uh, Jacob Steinberg, who uh, was on one of our pods about West Ham, always talks about the time when he flat Steve Lomas with an elbow in the build-up to a goal at Highbury. Quite an important goal, I think. And he certainly had it in him, um, a bit like Zidane, actually. Uh, like that kind of brooding rage that could just come out occasionally. Um, yeah. I mean, my my dad always used to say, you know, particularly of the likes of Graham Sharp and others, that you've got to have that in a forward. And partly it was about the aggression that a forward needs to show. But I think it was also, you know, growing up, um, because football was changing in 98, but they, they certainly grew up at a time when, you know, centre-halves just went straight through the, the, the back of, uh, uh, of a centre-forward. Um, mm. And they, they did that more or less at will in the first half, because you weren't going to get a, a yellow card in the first half for, for that. And I think sometimes the the forwards, uh, and it's a different generation now because they're protected much more, but I think that was probably the last generation of forwards who really did have to grow up with with um, getting kicked up in the air um, over and over again. And clearly not all, um, there's always a Gary Lineker and an Alan Smith around, but... Um, Plenty of them, uh, in order to do the job, had to have uh, a streak of vengeance in them to look after themselves. Mm. And um, Bergkamp was was one who certainly had that. Um, just another point about about Dennis Bergkamp, and it's kind of an aside, but this match raises it. Was, was there ever a kind of world class number ten who was played as a number nine as often as Bergkamp was? Because it wasn't that often was it? <coughs> Well, he, he never. When he went to Arsenal, it wasn't absolutely clear because he'd had the disappointing season or two at Italy, and it took him time to to find his feet. But I don't think he he was ever kind of completely the playmaking number ten that we remember him as. Quite often, he did play further 
forward. And we've looked at Platini earlier, and we've talked of Zidane and Maradona and Cruyff. I don't think, you know, we didn't have things like heat maps then. My feeling is that Bergkamp played a little further forward of that. And, you know, had he had he been much more of a kind of, his managers believed in him as a playmaking number 10, would we have got not just a great player, but an all-time great player in to be mentioned in the same breath as Platini and Zidane. That's that's interesting. My memory, that's completely different to my memory. Certainly certainly Arsenal, yeah. There was a period um, just while Henri was settling when Wenger played Bergkamp and Kanu up front, which is slightly counterintuitive at two number 10s. But um, I know I don't remember that at all. I mean, I do remember there was the infamous FA Cup final of 2005 when they um, beat United on penalties, having been absolutely battered for... 120 minutes and Bergkamp played up front and he's only in that game but I don't know I always think of him just I mean I suppose in in English football in the mid to late 90s there was a kind of a crossover between 4-4-2 and what we now see as 4-2-3-1 so maybe there's something in it but I don't know I generally think of him as being I generally think of Arsenal formation in that time as being for what we now think of as 4-2-3-1 or or kind of 4-3-3-1 because Ray Parler was so good at doing two things playing as a Third central midfielder and a right winger, but um, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. It's really, I've never really thought of him in that sense. But you, you would never, you would never even consider the possibility of those others that we've named there in a World Cup knockout match, saying that the centre forward in this case, Clivert, was injured, so he went and played on his own up front. I mean, it would never happen to Platini or Maradona or Cruyff. No, never. I think, yeah, but I think of them as slightly different. Bergkamp, I, I know what you mean. I mean, I I think of Bergkamp as a number 10 who moves back from centre forward rather than, whereas Platini, mm. I think of as a number 10 and almost like an advanced number eight. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that's I think that's fair, Rob. Um, but I, I, to be honest, I don't know enough about, certainly about his period into I know it was, seen as disappointment but I don't know how they used him then um but yeah I suppose I mean it is it's unusual and it just never works United had a similar thing they would occasionally play Eric Cantona up front on his own in Europe particularly in the early well in fact his only season in the European Cup with the younger players the class of 92 and it never really worked um so yeah and it's not like they were short of players they had um Van Hoydonk was Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank in the squad, maybe. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, um, unused. Uh, so yeah. they weren't completely short of options, but I, I've always been interested actually in Bergkamp in the context. We we think of the Netherlands as playing the classic four three three all the time, but he doesn't really fit into that. So I guess it it's kind. Of, I mean, again, it's quite fluid and open to interpretation. But um, you know, if you think of the Man City four three three, which is how I often think about Dutch football, there's no place in that. Uh, system for Bergkamp um, yeah. but here I mean I guess it was more when Clive played it was more of a 4-2-3-1 I guess um, with Overmars and whoever else ended or whoever on the wings mm. Mike have you anything to add to that um, slight digression that we've had there uh, not much really no just um, I think Bergkamp just played there in this game out of necessity uh, really Um Maybe there was an issue Hiddink didn't trust, completely trust Van Hoydonk. Um, and it was Van, ha- uh, Van Hasselbank. What I it was, Has- <laughs> it was uh, Hasselbank before we we kind of knew. He had that kind of great season where he took off at Leeds. Um, 
and then became a like, really prolific player in the Premier League. Um, but I think if you, if you remember what Bergkamp had done in the season leading up to this, in that sort of great Arsenal double-winning team, he was playing just in behind Ian Wright and then then later on Anelka. Um, and Christopher bril- Ray. And Christopher Ray, yeah. <laughs> had, a, had a brilliant season in that position, but I just um, it was, yeah, square pair ground hole here. I mean, it just didn't work and there was an and you'll see it in the next games as well there was an immediate difference when uh when Clivert came back but it, to me that smacked of like you know Paul Scholes being shunted out onto the left wing mm. it's like well you're good enough technically so just stand there and do it for this yeah for yeah this game. it doesn't work yeah yeah okay so we'll we'll move to um the last hurrah for a golden generation uh Romania nil Croatia won. Mike. Yeah, not uh, too much to say on this one. Really. As you say, end the end of an era. So Georgie Hadji, uh, Petrescu, um, Popescu, Dan Petrescu, all the, these players that had got Romania through all these World Cups in the 90s, or, or most of them. Um, yeah, this was their last hurrah, really. That I think they'd had their kind of big result in the first round in beating England, um, and then they all they all went and did the banter haircut and all got their hair um, hair bleached uh, <laughs> as a result afterwards. But um, yeah, lost here to a to a penalty. Davos Sukas his third goal of the tournament. Um, it's a really strange thing before he scores this penalty. Suka is that he puts his hand on his neck. Do you know, yeah, and, do you know what that was? Well, it looks like he's taking his pulse. Well, yeah, I so I, I looked in Chris Freddie's book and he apparently he claimed, Suka claimed that he, he checked his pulse and if it was below a certain level, he knew he was calm enough to take a penalty. However, Chris points out this is almost certainly bollocks because he didn't stand there long enough to take his pulse, you know, he didn't stand for 60 seconds. But also, what's he going to do if it's like one over, give it to someone else? Um, but it, but that's what he said he was doing. Yeah, um, apparently he checked checked his pulse before he took penalties. It was twice taken as well, wasn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. So God knows what his pulse was by the time the second one. <laughs> it's a great one for the goalkeeper though, isn't he? Yeah, he looks up and Suka's got the uh, fingers on the neck there yeah. taking his pulse, and then he puts his hand back. So oh, I'm going to take it now. And the goalkeeper thinks, God, he's already one nil up here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you've got to uh, play the mind games a little bit there, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, you need to work. You, you need to work out beats per minute, don't you? So yeah, you've exactly. got five seconds. You're going to have to do the <laughs> the maths where you should be thinking about what corner am I going to put it in. You're trying to work out work out your uh, your pulse per minute. But uh... given all the monitors they've got now, they could hold up one of those substitution boards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Race on it. I'm afraid it's a one two two yeah. devil. Yeah. Forty-seven. Or with, yeah. <laughs> or with VAR, you could just say to him, "Look, you're going to have to take this four times anyway, so just calm <laughs> down." And you know, <laughs> yeah, excellent. So, so uh, Croatia. That was the first time that we were really aware of of Croatia being a a, a power in in world football because well, it was a it was a new country. Really, we we kind of we kind of knew there was a, a part of Yugoslavia because you know they spoke. Serbo-Croat. I think that was the first time we really heard the word Croat, and there were no doubt don't, some wartime historians. Don't forget but, 96. Oh, was yeah. it that, were they Croatian in 96? They were brilliant in 96. Oh, how could you forget, enough, Gary? Uh, but you're right, I it was their forget. first It was their first World Cup appearance, so ah, the point, yeah. point kind of stands. Yeah. And, and, and since then, um, my 
less than perfect memory, as I'm demonstrating more and more as we go through this podcast. <laughs> uh, I, I can remember that Croatia have not just played in a World Cup semi-final, but have subsequently played in a World Cup final. Um, so uh, they, for a, for a relatively small country, their their World Cup uh, heritage is, is is pretty good, really. Their uh, actually their their record since they were. Um admitted uh, into international well readmitted I should say into international football in the early 90s it's pretty exceptional actually if you look at some of the teams they've taken out in in major tournaments they mm. they they don't have that hang up that that we've talked about in other countries yeah. you know that yeah, that inferiority great. complex um uh that you see i mean they went on to beat italy in the um 2002 World Cup in the group stages as well. You know they did that from one behind. I mean that that goes against a lot of the logic of what we've been talking about. Mm. So uh, we move, and it's a heartache to do so, to Argentina versus England. We were holding out for a hero, and, and one turned up, but there was to be so much more than that. As eventually we lost in France, but not without plenty of drama. Uh, Rob, you've written a. Uh, uh, a piece uh, about this, one of your extended pieces of long-form writing, and uh, we'll link that uh, on the Twitter feed. But uh, do you want to kick us off with uh, a match for the ages? Yeah, well, she's where'd you start? Even the build-up was quite... Um, kind of lots of notable things. The press fucking haranguing Graham Lasso's Argentinian wife. Um, there was a... <laughs> there was an Adidas... Talking about Adidas or Adidas, there was an advert in the... Um, papers on the morning of the game with Beckham on it and the slogan read obviously reference to the hand of God after tonight England v Argentina will be remembered for what a player did with his feet <laughs> and they, were, they weren't wrong um, yeah, yeah the, the game so it just exploded I mean, it's two games in one really the first half which ends 2-2 is just like a spectacular blockbuster then after Beckham's red card which will come to it becomes a really kind of subtle tactical battle um but, yeah, it starts with, I mean, Owen had already, Michael Owen was on fire against Colombia and he'd already had one dangerous run before Argentina got a penalty. I think it was the sixth minute, something like that. So Simeone kind of conned, conned it, really. He ball was kind of drifting across the area. Seaman came out and it's almost like he couldn't get the message from his brain to his body fast enough. Um, and then Simeone dragged the leg against him, went over, penalty, Batistuta, kind of rammed it through seam and got hands on it, but uh, it was just, yeah, too much power. Um, and then um, not long after, Michael Owen won an equally dodgy penalty. Um, just it basically just picking up the ball and running at people. Like, no. But, I mean, Argentina was so frazzled that their sweeper, I think it was Ayala, was often like literally 20 yards behind the centre-backs, which was just bizarre. So there was a huge gap for Owen to run into get momentum and then by the time he reaches Ayala um, he's got you know everything in his favour but anyway he, he went between two defenders I think slightly brushed went down um, Shearer who hadn't had a great tournament still scored a brilliantly emphatic penalty um, so that's 1-1 one, one after what 10 minutes or something ridiculous um, and then I'll let Mike or you talk about the first kind of famous moment of the game. In fact, yeah, I'm just thinking Shearer's penalty was nine minutes. Yeah. So, and in 16 minutes, um, yeah, Owen scores the goal of his life. But yeah, I'll let one of you talk about that. Well, I'll bring Mike in, but I'll, I'll just say, um, you could probably 
talk a little bit about where we where we watch this. But before we 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 do that, um, I remember watching Owen, and it was a little bit like the old games of Pong, if you recall, that very early computer game, where all of a sudden the ball would speed up um, because the rally <laughs> yeah, had been yeah. going on too long. And Michael Owen in in this tournament was was like a game of pong where all of a sudden things just sped up as owen picked up the ball and it was like he was playing on a on a different level to everybody else not a, a level in the sense of level of skill it was like in a computer game where the, the degree of difficulty goes up because all of a sudden the, the ball is coming at you more more quickly and it, it was an extraordinary sight because he 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 just was a, a kind of man apart a boy apart really um, but before we, we we go into the detail there, um, uh, I watched this in my in my living room, and I can remember the the kind of anticipation and the and and the the, the feeling, and then that extraordinary sort of tumultuous opening uh, there. But uh, but before I go to Mike fully, I just go back to you, Rob. Where, where did you watch this? Do you recall? I watched it in a, a bar at Keele University, so it was the night before my grab ball. Um, right. and my, my most vivid memory actually is obviously everyone had plastic glasses uh, when Owen scored everyone just, just <laughs> begged them in the air full pints just everyone everyone got covered no one gave a toss it was just it was such a vivid memory of just seeing it lager cheap lager just flying through the air please please tell me there was a Scotsman rooting for uh, Argentina <laughs> somewhere there probably was but yeah um, yeah, oh. yeah. Uh, what about yourself Mike uh, I, I remember, um, so I would have been in my second year at university. I'm pretty sure I watched this at home. I think I would have gone back home by this point. Yeah, because the only reason why I was still there is because it was a grab ball. Obviously, term had finished a couple of weeks earlier. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I remember watching it at home. Um, also, I remember you didn't really have time to, I mean, I was much more of an England fan then than I, I am now, but it was almost like you didn't have time to get nervous about it. I think the ITV coverage started at 7.30 for a 7.45 kickoff. Yeah, so they did a really, yeah, you know, they would build that up for an hour now, you know, a yeah. game of that uh, that magnitude. It's just like they, they turned up. Four hours of Richard Keys days. But yeah. yeah. But with, um, with it being ITV, there were two ad breaks in that 15 minutes as well. So it's just like you were straight into it. Yeah. Um, and like Rob said, I mean, where do you start? I mean, the... The atmosphere around this game in the stadium, and you could feel it through the television because it was a really small. Yeah, I think it was the smallest stadium in the tournament. San Etienne, Etienne. was it? Yeah, it's a good yeah. point actually about you it was... made it France Paraguay as well. You get fantastic atmospheres because it's smaller stadiums. Yeah, and it just adds to the intensity. And I love those games in you know in Europe in late spring and summer when you know the kick off it's still daylight, but they finish what, what yeah. feels like you know midnight. Or something like really, really deep into the night, and they just carry. They seem to carry that intensity with them all the way through. And the the pace of this opening ten minutes is just ferocious, really. And yeah. it's it, it actually, if you think about what one of the big talking points before the tournament was whether England would take Paul Gascoigne or not, and the debate was, oh, you, you get a good hour out of him. I mean, every, everyone kind of knew he would he'd, he'd gone, and you know he couldn't really play a full ninety minutes anymore. But I just think of like, mate, and he's a great player, obviously Gascoigne. But can you imagine him in that game yeah, at that really time in his point. career? He just, I don't think he would have, he could have coped in that um, that midfield. And actually, actually, after England go out, actually, it was never a talking point at all. It's like, I, what if we'd had Gascoigne? It wasn't even a, 
it, it wasn't even a debate really. But um, would, yeah, it would have been like that GIF from from Scanners where the head gets bigger and redder and redder yeah. and just explodes. You would never have dealt yeah. with it. You're right. But um, yeah, at one all, um, as Rob makes the point, it, it was already clear what a threat Owen was. That extraordinary sight of them dropping 20, 30 yards off him because they just couldn't deal with him at all. And that, that played into the goal as well. So that, um, I don't know if you can give Beckham an assist for an individual goal like this, but he, <laughs> plays a a really, he plays a really nice ball to Owen, who, what's often underrated in this, I think, is Owen's first touch yeah, to take yeah. him past the first man. It's just, it's the sort of touch you take when you just, you're absolutely just flying. You're so high on confidence that you just think you can do anything. And there's only there's only two England players I've seen in my life, forwards particularly, who just get the ball and just think, I'm just going to run through whatever's in front of me. I mean, Owen's one, Rooney is another at at 2004. And this is what he did here. And it's just, it's straight line running, basically. So he goes past the first man, squares up, I think it's Ayala, isn't it? Who's yeah, on the it's, edge it's, it's Shamot's the first one. Who he kind of yeah. holds him off really well. I'd, I'd forgotten this actually. Just I, when I was reading a couple of things, Shavok had threatened to kill a journalist a couple of days earlier. So he clearly wasn't. Um, <laughs> it was clearly a pretty rugged defender. But yeah, Owen yeah. has really good strength to lose him. And then he has that. You're right. He has that run at Ayala, who is. I mean, it, defending isn't great. As as glorious as the goal is, Ayala's kind of square on. He's static, mm. so um, that makes it easier for Owen. Yeah, I mean, I was in a bad position, but once Owen's got him like that, he's done. Yeah, he's I mean, fucked anyway, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. You, could, you couldn't defend Owen like that. And the way he cuts to the side, and then I think Skulls comes in from the right, doesn't he? And looks yes. like he's going to take it off his toes. But Owen's almost throws an arm out at him just to stay out of the way oh, of his yeah. mind. Well, Skulls is actually in a yeah. better position. But obviously, <laughs> the point is Owen is in, like you say, the mother of all zones. And yeah, it's actually a really good finish because he has to properly wrap his foot around it, doesn't he? Clip yeah. it back into the top, the far top corner. Yeah, the top corner as well, which is where he sticks his penalty later. I mean, yeah. it's just... Imagine, like, you know, well, one being that good at football, but playing with that amount of confidence just flowing through you. Yeah. Well, he just had that air of, well, I'm just going to destroy these guys on my own. And also, so. I think they hadn't conceded a goal in eight games before this. I yeah. think, and he just he's 18 years old and he just absolutely terrorized him. I got at that point I think I think it's easy to forget how exciting he was and how good we thought he would be. I mean he obviously had a pretty good career. Some would say a great career, but I thought I was witnessing the kind of emergence of the greatest English player of all time. Um, oh yeah. I mean it just I even Rudy at Euro 2004 wasn't as exciting I don't think as Owen in it was only a week. I mean, I know obviously there was the build up of the a very good ninety seven ninety eight season with Liverpool, but for that week to do that on that stage it was just extraordinary. Well, just, actually, you know, I, yeah, I remember. I remember about eight. Oh, it would have been the start the start of the following Premier League season where he scored a hat trick against yeah. Newcastle. There's one goal. I think it might be his third goal where yeah, he goes great. past him on the edge. It's it's almost. You could blink and it's like watching Maradona, the way he goes past him and then mm, thinks the finish. And you just think, God, what is he going to become? This actually, funnily enough, Maradona said the only good thing to come out of the 98 World Cup was Michael Owen. Speed, cunning, balls. I hope injury doesn't destroy him, which yeah. of course it partially did. Mm. I, I, I I didn't look this up beforehand. <coughs> Excuse me. So I, I, I may be wrong in this, but I'm pretty sure I saw Owen playing at Goodison um, in the season before, you know, his kind of breakout season. Um, it, it was either 
before or just after, wasn't but that, I'm pretty that was sure... A, was that, a game, that was a Danny Calamari game, I think. It, yeah, I think it might have been. I think it might have been. I, I, I want to look this up because I know that when I'm remembering without checking, find out that it was a year or two either side or something. But I remember after about 10 minutes, either my brother turned to me or I turned to him and I said, this lad's quicker than Ian Rush. Oh, and yeah. the speed was just extraordinary. I mean, he was a, he wasn't particularly uh, developed. He was a slip of a lad, a bit like Ryan Giggs, who I also saw at a very young age playing at, uh, at Goodison. Um, but Owen was lightning fast, and that's that combination of of not just the the physical attribute of speed, but the confidence and the speed of thought to see situations developing um, before other players. Uh, did and you know I think you're absolutely right uh, the the two times where you think we've got a genuine world-class player that I can say in in my time uh, playing for England one was uh, Rooney in 2004 and the other was Owen in in 98 um, we get excited about players we're currently excited about Jack Grealish for with good reason but these were two that looked that looked like they were a hair's breadth away from being world class, and um, you know that that doesn't come often uh, to an English player. But um, it wasn't, as you say, quite to be. But this was this was the his kind of zenith that first half in a, in an England shirt, and what a what a peak it was. One thing that's um, said about him often. Really, he's just reduced to like, oh, all he ever had was pace. But if you watch him in this World Cup, he's, he's like, you know, he's nutmegging people, he's dribbling, he's, yeah. he's not just blasting people away with um, speed. And, and I he's think a he's a brilliant he's, finisher. Yeah, he's a great. And particularly the, the bigger the occasion, actually, he often missed chances when it. I mean, even if you look at his Man United career, he often had some laughable misses. But when he needed to in a Manchester derby, injury time finished absolutely brilliantly. It just felt like, I mean, again, obviously 2002, scores against Brazil, and you never doubted him when it really mattered one-on-one. Yeah, I mean, he's got that YouTube reel of big moments in big games, hasn't he? Mm. I think he suffers a bit from what you were talking about earlier, Rob, about um, being disowned by set. A bit like Paul Ince, you know, he played for United and Liverpool, and therefore therefore neither set of fans really... um, Mm really hold him dear to their hearts. Yeah, but, uh, Newcastle fans aren't too fond of him. <laughs> or Alan Shearer, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, I remember I remember seeing the um, that famous clip where he's with uh, Neville Sowell <laughs> and, the, and the kids. Oh, yeah. and there was just, I mean, that, that, would, that would be somewhat forgotten, but, you know, it's created... The exact reactions you always get when you raise that, you know, with laughter and a kind of sigh, because it it did say something about him. He was he was hard to to love uh, Michael Owen in a way that kind of Robbie Fowler was. Even for Evertonians, you could kind of you know get the charisma and get the uh, the the player there. And he was another who looked like he was going to be um, an extremely classy player, and uh, his career fizzled out earlier than expected. Um, but I think Robbie Owen, uh, Robbie Owen, oh, there's yeah. a there's a player. Robbie Fowler is is held with much more kind of affection, if that's the right yeah, word. Massive. Yeah, it's definitely. somewhere between affection and respect, whereas. Michael Owen is still sort of held with a bit of disdain for 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 those reasons. He was hard. 
he was easy to admire and hard to like, where it's usually the other way around with a lot of the, uh, England players. You can't, you know, <laughs> like like uh, Gazer, he was <laughs> he must have been easy to like because you're never sure yeah. what you're going to get. But can you really admire him? No, you you can't in yeah. lots of ways. One uh, one one quick thing on that Michael Owen's um, soccer school. Actually, is that what it's called, Michael Owen's soccer school? Something yes, like that, wasn't it? Um, there's a podcast I, I, I love and I've uh, really got into in lockdown called the Socially Distant Sports Bar and they, they covered this um, as one of the clips they talk about and um, Ellis James, um, the comedian's on it and uh, he made the point. So when Owen's thundering all those shots past a 15-year-old, he, he said like there were barely any goalkeepers in world football that could have stopped Owen at that point. <laughs> yeah. And yet he's taking great delight in... Um, you know, whacking these shots past this little kid. And I think there's a lovely aside from Neville Southall where he just yes. says, oh, well done, he's 15. <laughs> <laughs> Which is only just picked up, it's only just audible, but it's a lovely like, undercutting <laughs> kind, of, uh, kind of moment. Yeah. So, so Rob, um, you said we would, we would look at a, a very different second half. So do you want to cue us in for that? Uh, yeah, so, well, the, the first half, like Mike said, the speed was just dizzying. I mean, Argentina had a lot of the ball, particularly around Verón and Ortega. The, the battle between Ortega and Ince is wonderful. I mean, I, I'm not sure Ince ever played better for England, and he just about keeps Ortega under control. But Ortega was so slippery. He was always nutmegging people. Verón firing these passes into him on the edge of the area. But England were also very menacing on the counter. They should have gone through one up. Skulls missed tricky-ish chance on the run but probably for him quite easy um, from a, a sheer flick on that was after about 38 minutes I think so that was the first of kind of three big blows to England in a short period either side of half time second was the equaliser just on half time it's a glorious free kick um, Zanetti hides behind the wall pulls out Veron slides it into him one touch with the right foot smacks it with his left it's interesting that apparently they've been working on that for four years, but he had never been the one behind the wall. It was supposed to be someone else, but they couldn't get it to work. So Passarella before the game, the manager suggested. In fact, it was supposed to be Ortega. Passarella suggested before the game they try it with Zanetti. Literally the first time he tried it. Um, then half time, uh, there's quite a nice little um, uh, nugget that uh, there was no. It's a 26 million, and the power surge at half time was the biggest in Britain since JR was shot on Dallas in 1980. <laughs> um, so, yeah, then we you got the, the, probably the most famous moment of the game, which is David Beckham's red card uh, straight after half-time. I mean, there's so much to say just about this. It's very sly from Simeone. He takes a shortcut through Beckham, which is a bad foul. I think Simeone was booked. Um, Beckham's lying on his front, and he just tugs his hair slightly, um, and then Beckham just flicks a foot out. I mean, I, I, I don't think, by the standards of 98, I don't think it was a red card offence at all. Um, but I think it was a yellow card. But anyway, but there's a there's a moment, I mean, it all started going off and there was a long delay between the actual kick and the red card. Um, and there's a, there's a horrible moment. You always know this because the referee shows a yellow card. It must be Simeone. Then he goes to his pocket. Yeah. You can hear Brian Moore's voice. Oh, wait a minute. He's kind of, and, and suddenly out comes the red card. And then, you know. Beckham's world just completely collapses. But I don't know what you think. I mean, it's a red card now, I think, any kind of kicking out is. But I don't think by the standards... It's quite hard to remember because there's no... Someone needs to set up a um, a guide to how the laws have developed over time, you know, offside and everything. So you can 
But I, but my memory of the standards of the time is that he was pretty unlucky to be sent off. And I think that was generally, despite the fact the press... This is one thing that irritated me so much about the press haranguing him. Because on the one on the back page, it's just, they're kind of quietly tucking away that he was unlucky to be sent off. And on the front pages, they're putting fucking effigies and stuff. Um, but there you go. It was what it was. And, um, and it changed the game completely because... England then, I wouldn't say they played for penalties, but obviously they had to. I mean, I think this is, Huddle was absolutely masterful, the speed and decisiveness with which he reorganised England. I think he ended up with five players in different positions to where they were before Beckham was sent off, went to a 4-4-1. Shearer and Owen did kind of 10 minutes each on the right wing um, and then up front. Um, and he, st- he just made so many clever little changes. He brought, Lasso had to go off because it had a bad reaction to a caffeine tablet at half-time, bizarrely. Um, so he brought on Southgate and left-back, which meant he had four centre-backs. And they only defended the width of the penalty area. And Argentina were all about like, like little eye-of-the-needle passing and things like that. Um, so they covered that really well. He brought Anderton in. I think he brought Batty on. Um, then later, Merson came on. I mean, the idea was to get someone who could carry the ball on the break. So it was quite... And Merson had hardly played for England. Um for God knows how long since the Graham Taylor era, but it was a quite clear. It didn't actually work because Mercer put the wrong boots on and kept slipping over. But I can understand the logic of it. Um, and they broke Argentina like well before the end. Um, and Adams and Neville talk about it quite nicely in their books how they almost like getting high off it. You know the fact that the, how well they were playing and the little ticking things off. So five minutes, ten minutes, then Batistuta substituted, then another ten minutes, and so on. Um, and it was fascinating to watch and just a. a Brilliant defensive performance, really, and not. There was obviously there was all the kind of over my dead body mentality that you associate with English football traditionally, but it was also a very intelligent performance, and I think that's sometimes forgotten. Actually, and Ince, as I said, Ince was just incredible. Um, yeah, and I'll shut up now. <laughs> so, uh, Mike, what's what's your take? Uh, we'll just go back to the red card quickly. Yeah. Is, um, I. I do think it was a sending off. I remember thinking it was a sending off really? at the time. Yeah, well, I mean, that World Cup, it was kind of, it was a real mixed bag for red cards. You know, you had Blanc being sent off for, you know, pushing Bilic in the face. Then you had things, you know, like Zidane's stamp. We mentioned the one earlier, you know, where, where Burkamp got away with it. As soon as I saw the replay of it and, it's just a you know, flick the refs. Yeah, I, I understand what you mean, but I think... I'm pretty sure about it, that there was a rule about kicking out and retaliation. It's, it may even have been just, you know, when they bring in rules for the World Cup, they say we're going to clamp down on this this yeah. time. It becomes like a shot window. But I'm That's reasonably sure that was the case. And I, as soon as I saw that, which I think they showed the replay before they showed yeah. the red card. Yeah, there was a long it, gap. There was a yeah, long gap. It, it reminded me of when, when Nani got sent off against um, Real Madrid. Oh, okay. Uh, just that kind of pause. I just think there's that kind of unsettling air. I think you get, I just remember thinking yeah. he's going to get sent off here. He's going to go. Um, I was just really worried about the way the ref viewed it. Also, the way the Argentina players surrounded the yes. the referee. I mean, Batistuta, um, you know, was right there. Um, so maybe a little bit harsh, but I can see, I can see why he sent him off. But I'm, I, I think that the real interesting thing about it, actually, is the, the difference in the two reactions in terms of the media. If you look at what Rooney did, 
um, eight years later. Yeah. He stamped on someone's bollocks <laughs> yeah, in a World Cup quarterfinal. And the lengths they went to, the yeah. mental gymnastics yeah, 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 yeah. to try and, to try and you know, make out that Demonized he shouldn't Ronaldo. have been sent off. He was just trying to keep his balance. It's like, come on, you can see what he's why, done. There. Why do you think that is? That's a really good point. Because, uh, that, yeah, it's a weird shift to take in Is it something years, about it? Beckham not being a real man? Or perception, you know, so wrong and everything? Uh, well, I think I th- I do think. Sorry, guy. I do think generally there was the sense of um, the way Beckham's stock had gone up in the t- previous two years mm. um, since he broke into the England side. It is it is a bit of that tall poppy thing, yeah. That kind of overrides any patriotic. Oh, we'll defend him because he's English, kind of thing. Mm. Um, that it felt like there was an undercurrent of that. The kind of ABU stuff, I think, kind of played into it. I think that's well. really important. You know, Man United yeah. were more hated then than they were in 2006. And also Beckham felt more of a United player than Rooney because he'd grown mm. up there. I think there's an element. The, the other thing is, though, that I mean, people will say Beckham was a bit of a loose cannon through the tournament, which I don't particularly agree with. But Rooney was a loose cannon in 2006. I mean, you, I wouldn't say you could see it coming, but you could retrace the steps now. Do you remember when he was taken off against someone? It might have been... Oh, throwing his boot on yeah, the floor. Yeah, yeah. And he was just it clearly... The fact that he wasn't fully fit and able to start the tournament... It clearly, you know, got into his head. But yeah, it's a really interesting point. Um, maybe by then, maybe after Beckham, they just decided on um, outright xenophobia and just you know, blame anyone you can who isn't English, yeah. the referee. And uh, my, my take, my take is, is slightly different to to yours. I mean, I remember it very clearly, and one of the images, and I remember the image at the time, not just in the kind of pictures that came out later. Is that the the ref, referee was it Kim Nielsen? Is yeah, Kim ref- Nielsen. Yeah, yeah, was was like six four or something, and, yes. and Beckham is looking up like kind of um, Mark Lester in Oliver asking <laughs> for uh, more gruel at this enormous towering figure who's got the red card raised to be even even higher, and I. I my reflection was was a little bit like Mike's. Once you saw the slow slow motion, I was pretty sure he was going to be sent off. Um, like Mike, I think it's kind of it's a kind of three quarters of a red card. It's the kind of card you get at away games that you don't necessarily, or red card you get at away games you don't necessarily get at home games. So you know it falls into the dreaded category of I've seen them given. But I re- <laughs> I remember that my my two reflections on it at the time were that unlike the the Rooney incident that you've talked about there Beckham is lying prone as you've said to the face down and he flicks this kick out there is no reason for him to do that there's no there's no mistime challenge there's no I was trying to get out of the way there's no hang on heat of the moment well, hang on a minute it's surely, just a, it's just a flick. surely if someone pulls your hair I'm not saying you should do it, but I think there's, that's more of a reason than to stab at someone's bollocks when you're competing for a ball with them. Yeah, I yeah, don't know. I like I it keep... is, but it's just it, it's just that that there's the retaliation that must have happened to Beckham from the time he was playing schoolboy football in in Newham. I know it's different when you're on a World Cup stage, it's difficult, isn't it? but so... to but to have but to have waited sort of that long and then do the flick it's just really uh, yeah i know inviting. what you mean and he's not actually he's not actually even going to hurt simeone no, he's it's just not anger. even nah. yeah he's not going to get back at him so it it wasn't even a good bit of um of retaliation it was just 
it just looked really bad. It didn't look heat of the moment, even though obviously it's a cauldron of a match, but it wasn't sort of uh, the, 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 the red mist deciding, sending in a second. I it was literally, once you see it, well, it, it certainly wasn't immediate. There's anger in it. No, but there is anger in his face when he does it. Yeah, there yeah. is. But the other, the other thing, which was a bit of a clincher for me. But you're right, there is a delay. You're right about that. It's slightly yeah. odd. Yeah, anyway, yeah. The, the the absolute clincher for me is that what's the referee going to do if he's seen it and clearly he has seen it and the Argentines are in his face telling him and he's saying I've seen it I'm going to deal with it do you then say well okay for the rest of this match you can have a kick at whoever you fancy but ultimately ultimately what's worse Simeone deliberately taking a shortcut through his Achilles what's more painful and I get, I don't get me wrong. I get why he's sent off, and I get why players now would be sent off. But ultimately, what's worse? Well, yeah, I I'd think... agree. I'd yeah, I'd agree with Rob there. Actually, I mean, Simeone's it's foul, a really it's, cynical. It's horrible. Yeah, it's yeah, a lot yeah. worse than what Beckham did. I, but I, 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 only, I'm not saying Simeone should have been sent off because he wouldn't have been then, and he probably wouldn't now by those standards. But ultimately, I just think that's a worse I, thing uh, to do. I, I, I would, I would agree. It's a worse thing to do, but there's a different kind of uh, conceptual yeah. framework or relative no, framework one is kind of within the game the other is without the game if mm. you like and that's that was sort of almost my point with with Rooney and other things I think it's always been looked upon as as worse when the game is stopped the thing is done and then a player does something that is outside yeah. the ambit of football not a mistime challenge not a reducer yeah. no, I just know what you mean. a little bit of personal i'll have a little bit of that and i think that that um by the as i say what i would expect if an everton player got sent off for that at goodison i'd be a bit disappointed if they got if he got sent off uh for that at i don't know leicester or definitely at anfield i'd say well you know what do you expect you shouldn't be doing that given the referee the opportunity do you not think in in var world that's an automatic red card now i'm not saying it should be well, I think it is an automatic red card, and I have a little bit of a thing about these because, I mean, maybe this is getting into contemporary football. I think a lot of players do things to provoke retaliation, mm. provoke a player into doing things. Yeah. And I, I say this when I'm watching stuff with, with Jesper or something, and I say, well, the reason he's doing that is he wants the reaction, and then the referee sees the reaction or VAR sees the reaction of somebody getting up and laying a left-hander on them or, or something <laughs> like that. And... And then the player walks away smirking. Now, we all know, because we've all been in school playgrounds, I'm looking at one outside my window now, that there are sneaks who've done this since the age of three or four. Now, I'm not saying that Beckham was necessarily thinking as cynically as that. But if you don't deal with it, it goes on more and more. And I, I just don't think you can you can say that these these little things again it's the hair pulling standing on toes at corners and these kind of things they build up over a, a match and if you just allow them to go and say well he wasn't really trying to hurt him but he probably was trying to get a reaction out of him then I think it's 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 a slippery slope and the other I reason think, I, yeah. and I have a big thing about this it's easy not to do it it's easy just to Count to ten and hold. As it's I say, not that he's easy been, for it's, not, it's not though, Gary. <coughs> he's been I, doing, think I think he's been doing it all his life because yeah, he's got that side to him definitely. But some people do, you know. Yeah, he's got not, ten red cards in his career or something. So yeah. you know, this was not an aberration. He didn't but, get that many. 
I think he did. I, I remember looking it up. Yeah, I really? think he got about four in the in United States or something. Oh, maybe twice, he's tw- twice for England. He's been sent <laughs> off, isn't he? But yeah, uh, yeah but I, you say it's easy. I don't think it is. I think it's easy for some people. It's not for others. Beckham always had that um, kind of uh, capacity to react. Yeah, whether I, 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 I suppose uh, you could make the point that maybe they should try more to control it and stuff. But again, back then people just didn't, did they? You didn't think about bloody anger management or anything in footballers. Yeah, but not many more, yeah. more anger management to encourage it. That well, yeah, but not just, many. Yeah. Not many players got sent off for retaliation for England in 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 big games. I mean, this is why well, Ray, Ray, Ray Wilkins. Ray Ray Wilkins uh, threw the ball at the referee, didn't he? Yeah, yeah but it, so it, the point the point is it's a loss yeah, of time. You, you're, uh, you're talking about you're talking about a sport that's played. You know, you've got adrenaline coursing through you. If someone's just smashed through the back of you, I mean, all right, it's it's, it's very easy to say don't react when that hadn't happened to you. I mean, I, th- I think it's I think it's the, I think it's I, the easiest thing in the world to you know I, I can't, <laughs> react to something. I, like I can't that. criticize. I, even now, when I play five sub football, I've got a diabolical <laughs> temper on me, so yeah. I can't criticize anyone. Look, I, 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 just, I uh, take I, I absolutely because I don't want to get hammered on Twitter here. I absolutely oh, no, no, no. take those points, but I do think that that one of the things that separates the really great players is that is that more. Often than not, not always. They're just able to to call upon the resources, call upon experience, like, call upon like what's Zidane, going on Zidane, like Zidane. And, <laughs> Pele, yeah, Maradona. Yeah, there, there are plenty. There are plenty of exceptions. There are absolutely plenty of exceptions. Um, but but often they're able, and each of those players that you've mentioned there was able more often to channel it into extraordinary performances. Oh, I don't know about that. Well, Zidane. I think. You anyway, have to uh, uh, you have to remember could... Beckham's age here as well. I mean, he's he's a young yeah, a good point. And kid been, at this point, and he'd been um, treated I, like shit by Hoddle. Yeah, treated like yeah. shit by Hoddle. He had all of that weighing into it as well. And also, I'm not I'm not going to go down the route of um, oh, you know, Simeone, that sneaky, uh, you know, that undercurrent English people yeah. apply into gamesmanship because what Simeone did that was pure Dennis Wise. Oh yeah, you know, totally. was, yeah, yeah. That that tug in the hair, you know, and and people have always done that in England. It's, but, it so it's routine. Yeah, say, but it's been happening to Beckham since he was five years old playing football yeah, in the playground. But there's there's an element in it, I think, of just you know disappointment. I think that Beckham, I guess, fell for it that he went for it. But yeah. I, can, I can understand why he did. Um, and I think you know, I, and obviously he learned from that. I think Beckham. Because oh, all right, he might have got more red cards, but I think I think his next red card for England was for two yellows. Yeah. Um, rather than I don't think he he fell for that kind of that kind of thing again because that there's um there's a game in the the following year's Champions League I think or maybe in the year after when uh, United played Fiorentina where the Fiorentina players were trying to wind Beckham up and try and get him sent off because they'd obviously seen what happened in 98 and he you know he didn't um he didn't go but they were squaring up to him and you know they were He's, leaving one on him and things I, like that I think I think he managed it a bit better but it was always there I remember a game at Liverpool when he um I think it was Redknapp he sort of half stamped on again it was a retaliation thing he got away with it um yeah. so I think he just I think it's just in his nature um yeah I I can see your point Gary I, I'm not I'm not sure I agree about great players um, being able to control it, but I do take your point. Um, More often than not, I don't think they do it all the time. As I've already mentioned yeah. uh, with Bergkamp, I think as a particularly as a, a, a ball playing forward, growing up with players coming through the, the back of you, you have to look after yourself. But it, it almost wasn't looking after yourself because it was it was never going to it was never going to get it back. Was it? It was never going to get your sort of a quid pro quo. It was just a, a 
a, a flick there. What was completely unacceptable was the reaction of the, the media and um, and the public at large when he returned, when he was public enemy number but one. But actually, he, he had, I was going to say, he didn't just have the last laugh, he had several, really. Ne- the next season, he had played the best football of his career um, and won the treble, went on, obviously, to becoming the captain, which was an incredible turnaround. I mean, I, I must say, the resilience he showed as a 23, 24-year-old that season is absolutely staggering because the stuff he had to put up with and to then go on to be so influential in the greatest season in club football history, in my opinion, it's just, it just beggars belief. I mean, you think, you think of the way people are publicly shamed now and how much it could ruin a person psychologically. And obviously he had great support from Alex Ferguson and everyone at United, but geez, he showed some courage. Yeah. I will say, actually, I think, I think the way, um, the way United handled it was really good as well. Mm. I mean, they didn't wheel him out to apologise in public. They didn't no. make him write an open letter to the England fans or anything. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's a, it's a red card in a game of football. You know, some players, you know, to play at their best, they need to locate the edge. And, you know, sometimes, you know, you lose it a bit, you go beyond it. it you know, it's just a red card in a football match. It happens wherever it happens. So, uh, Just... Uh... Just want to check here. Um, Jesus Christ! So I'm just yeah. looking at a couple of n- notes that I've made on this. So basically, two thousand, two and a half thousand callers to talk radio said he should never play for England again. One book, <laughs> one bookmaker offered odds of sixteen to one that the fallout would lead to his engagement to Victoria Adams being called off by the end of the year. And then there was, of course, the famous mirror dartboards with Beckham as the bullseye. Other scoring options included Jeremy Beadle for being Jeremy Beadle. Jesus, he's twenty three years old. Um, uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Well, I just go, I, I I'm just checking that I was at the match and I, I was uh, at this match at Goodison. Um, Everton won, Manchester United four. Uh, oh, York yeah. and Cole absolutely were brilliant mm. in that in that match. One of the best performances I've ever seen from two forwards in in tandem. Um, but Beckham's playing in that game. That's why I was just checking because I didn't want to say this without checking that he was playing. And my memory of it is that you know there's there was extra booze when the 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 team was uh, was um, read out, and then when he went to take a throw in early on, there was boo, and then everybody got fed up with it. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody nobody did any any more than that. So. Um, that would be that late. Was, that was late October, wasn't it? It was, yeah. It so was, it was starting to calm October. down slightly by then. Yeah. I, I, the first away game that season was West Ham, which was particularly unpleasant. Yeah, um, it always is there. Yeah, so. uh, it's great ground to go as an away fan, but you, you know, as a as a, as a a visiting player, you know, you're going to get stick. Mm. But I just wonder whether whether that was was representative because because um, you know, often players who are vilified by opposition fans and you hear about it, it's often the first five minutes and no more than that. It certainly wasn't the case with the racism that was directed to black players mm. that went throughout the whole 90 minutes. So I'm not saying it's the same as, as that, but it was, um, you know, it was, it was, it was nothing, let's put it this way, it was nothing compared to what Francis Jeffers got when he came back <laughs> to Goodison, but that's a, no, another story. I think story. it's more a combination of the media away games and also he didn't feel safe at his home he had to I think he had to police looking after him there was one night when he was on his own and there was an intruder Um, so basically yeah he heard noise in the garden and jumped out of bed and there was a man just staring at him with his arms folded saying nothing and there was just this weird face off and then he shouted what do you want and Beckham called the police Um, 
But I mean, stuff like that again when you're 23 years old. Jesus, yeah. no thanks. It's 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 pretty it's pretty bad. But let's let's just wrap up with the penalties. Uh, I don't, oh no, we, we've we, run we, over time. Oh, don't worry. We'll just we should quickly talk about a couple of other incidents. Mike, you might want to talk about the um, the, the uh, Campbell disallowed goal and then the Argentina breakaway. Uh, yeah. So um, yeah, that concludes our David Beckham show. For the- <laughs> <laughs> I think lockdown's finished, isn't it? Um, <laughs> Yeah, so as as uh, Rob said, you know England reorganised um, uh, really well, and you know Hoddle has to take a lot of credit uh, for how he did that. Uh, a quick note for Paul Ince as well, who I just thought was utterly outstanding yeah, in I this agree. game. Was best for all that for, for all that talk about him, um, or oh, you call yourself the governor? Why didn't you take a penalty in that? So well, he can call himself the governor because in this campaign, you know, he was brilliant in Rome against Italy, and he was just sensational here there's one tackle actually which you, you you know you probably get a red card for now where he dumps Veron right in front of the Argentina bench all the Argentina bench get up to remonstrate and then Ince just kind of like faces them down it's, it's like a really like, magnificent um defiant moment but um yeah then England, England almost uh win it I think it's with 10 minutes left that they get yeah. a corner and um it's whipped in. Campbell heads it in near the back post, but unfortunately, Alan Shearer jammed his elbow into <laughs> Carlos, Carlos Rowe's mouth. <laughs> so while while six England players are celebrating in the corner, uh, Argentina take the free kick from completely the wrong place. <laughs> Break, I think it's like six on four, really quickly. And then Ortega, I think he tries to slide through Cresswell. And Darren Anderton just does this heroic 80-yard dash from one penalty area so to the other. So he'd taken the corner. Some. On the other side oh, of the field, the corner, yeah. where? I um, think I think it was offside, Crespo, but Anderton yeah. didn't know that. Yeah, extraordinary. And actually, so was... it took so much out of him; he had to go off soon after. <laughs> yeah, but that, yeah, that was um, that was an extraordinary moment. And then um, the yeah, is, into England Sorry, had a better on. chances, didn't they? With uh, afterwards, Argentina didn't create a clear chance after Beckham was sent off. England had that one, which I, it was the right decision. Shearer elbowed him, but also Shamot handled in the area. In extra time, I mean, he was jumping for a header and misjudged it, but his arm was up. Clearly, yeah. a penalty now, but probably a penalty then as well. Uh, and that yeah. would have been Shearer penalty, golden goal, and he was so reliable at that time from the penalties yeah. spot. Well, part part of England's chin music about this game actually is like the the the, the penalty they didn't get and the disallowed goals. Yeah. But with the penalty you didn't get, well, you know, you got one in the first half that wasn't yeah, a penalty, true. so but- you know swings roundabouts and that but um yeah when they got into extra time it was just um yeah to keep an attack of that quality out yeah because then fresh players coming on didn't they like crespo as you say yeah gallardo uh, came on didn't he and um they just couldn't find a way through adams as well i thought was outstanding uh gary neville had a you know really good game there's a brilliant sort of controlled defiance to the whole thing it wasn't yeah, like exactly. last it it was just really really well organized no, um, 10 man performance um but then yeah it goes to penalties the problem england had is yeah. that because of the changes they had to make to stay in the game it meant they didn't have many penalty takers on the pitch so mm. uh, neville said he looked around with about five minutes of extra time to go looked around and realized they only had three natural penalty takers sheer owen and merson um, obviously they'd used all their subs because they had to they brought on players like Batty and Southgate um, and that ultimately cost them because Shearer Owen and Merson all scored um, and the other two gentlemen didn't yeah the my memory of it and it's a 
again, it's it's almost a kind of contradiction in some in some ways, is that we talked about the Italy game in qualifying where England went out with a plan and 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 really executed perfectly to ensure a, a clean sheet. Um, and as I say, I, I have slightly different views on, on that one. But you've already mentioned, Rob, about how many changes Hoddle made. And yet the team played as 10 men like... They they've been practicing this and playing they in had, this formation for years. They had they had practiced in um, I'm not sure exactly how, but they had prepared for playing with ten men, which is another side of Huddle's tactical thoroughness. I well, guess. if that's if that's the the case, um, then then you know hats off to Huddle because they really looked comfortable against an outstanding attack, as you've said. And my memory of it is that you know this is going to be penalties from around sort of you know. 80 minutes or you know never mind extra time um because england just did not provide any sort of uh, easy opportunities to play between the lines to get round the back to and they they just held out whilst carrying at least some threat um going forward so it wasn't like they all retreated into the box as you say and it wasn't like kind of those things where you know a goal's coming because they're getting further and further back and the free kicks that were being conceded 35 yards away from goal are now being conceded 25 yards away from goal um they just looked like they knew what they were doing they could keep these argentine attackers out and can we do it with penalties probably the only regret is that <coughs> Shearer was captain and therefore kind of un untakeoffable. I think they would have benefited from taking him off, to be honest, because what they did, which was quite clever, was have him and Owen doing ten minute shifts on the right wing. So that but Owen was such a threat, you would have just wanted to leave him yeah, and bring he, on a more natural right winger. But I but, mean it probably wouldn't have made a difference. But yeah. I just think that was that was the one regret because Shearer was a bit of a passenger in that tournament and nowhere near yeah. the um but, but he had to be on for penalties. Well, no, you don't. Yeah, but you don't. After fifty minutes, you don't think of penalties, do you? No, maybe not. Maybe um, not. But uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it's probably moot anyway. So, um, who wants to do penalties? It's our last uh, wrapping up. Uh, well, yeah, just a quick. I'll, I'll leave it to a quick point to say that we look at it now as part of a wider story of penalty failure. But actually, at the time, there wasn't that sense of foreboding. England's record was shootouts was played three, one, one, lost two. I think this is the one that kind of tipped them into that fatalism. Um, but I'll let, yeah, let Mike talk about the actual pens. Uh, yeah, well, well, what do you say? <laughs> this could be another 20 minutes. I mean, there's, there's so, there's so much um, psychological rubble to kind of, kind of uh, <laughs> try and crawl through here. So it's uh, Argentina miss first, actually. Um, Which happens quite a lot with when England lose yeah. shootouts, doesn't it? Yeah, so at that point, you think, well, it, on a psychological level then, England having held out for that long and then seeing Argentina miss first, you know, Argentina could have really, you know, gone on a wobbly one after, <laughs> at that point. Um, but then uh, Ince, who, as we've discussed before, didn't take a penalty at Euro 96, uh, stepped up next. And it's so important, isn't it, that you score yeah. your next one. To it's like that of, thing in darts, a break isn't a break unless you hold. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, so you've got to hammer home that advantage, and uh, his penalty was missed. Um, it was a crap. Some of it, some of some of England's penalties actually share his penalties. Both of them, the yeah, one in the match and the one brilliant. here. Yeah, yeah. He just, you know, absolutely. Owens you know, as the, well. The, the, yeah, the nerves of a bomb disposal expert. Yeah, Owens into the top corner off the post. Um, 
and uh, yeah, Mer- Merson's one's interesting as well. He's kind of he just about gets it through Rower. I think Rower gets a really good hand on it. Um, and I think yeah, Inga would have had a fair amount of confidence in this through having you know David Seaman, who's he's um, a great penalty taker, great yeah. penalty uh, uh, saving goalkeeper. Uh, but uh, yeah, it gets to it gets to three two, and then Batty steps up. Um, yeah, didn't really <laughs> was uh, kind of forced into. I think as Rob said, there were you know there weren't many options left in terms of penalty takers. Uh, obviously, Southgate great, was next, I think. Yeah, and you have the great Roll Keegan moment where um, he's put on the spot by Brian Moore. Uh, you know, do you think he's going to score? Yes, and then he, he misses straight away. Oh, no, and he says yes. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, and that's it. And then, uh, as Rob said, I think I think it's I think this is the point. I agree with Rob completely here about oh, no. where where penalties start to get to England as a kind yeah. of sorry. The, the, uh, no, no, go on, go on. Uh, they're just you know that there's something kind of deeper going on here than. Um, because I think before that, everyone had bought into the lottery kind of thing, mm, yeah. or you know, all the Germans are just unbeatable at this, that kind of thing. But um, yeah, from here, if you look at the amount of penalties, actually, it, I think England's after the the Spain shootout in which they won, in shootouts they've missed half of the penalties. <laughs> um, they've taken some something. It's some stat like that. So it's uh, yeah, it's it's. However much you try and replicate it in training in the match situation and that that kind of the history of it, particularly in international football, weighs into it so much, I think. Yeah, a couple of things. I got it wrong. It wasn't... Uh, Gary Neville was actually down to take the sixth. Imagine, imagine if he had missed and it had gone out, him and his mate Beckham, the press would have yeah, had an absolute yeah, field day. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's a really good point. I, I, it's interesting that the two kind of... And it shows the kind of psychological com- complexity of penalties. Two people who miss were the two hard hard men in midfield it's a batty I mean both took crap penalties Paul Merson made a great point that um, he said if there was any anyone you want to miss a penalty it was David Batty because he had his mm. life in perspective it wasn't going to ruin his world or bring him down forever and it didn't he just went back basically sat up all night drinking played golf in the morning went home to his family but he said basically he could live with it he, Batty said it. the only thing he couldn't live with is if he'd bottled it basically and not taken one so fair play to him for having that kind of broader perspective I, I remember and I don't know whether it was after this shootout or at some point, either before or after. I can't locate it at all. I can't even remember who it was. But it was it was either a Mateus or a Klinsman or, I don't know, it may even have been a closer or, or someone. And it was definitely a German. And I think the question to them was, do you practice penalties? Um and what was revealing about the answer was there was just a beat before the answer came back, yes. And that beat was because the player who was being asked could not believe that it was even a question whether to, they mm. were practising penalties. And yet, I'm pretty sure, even after this, England would have this cavalier, you can't replicate the pressure, so it's not even worth practising penalties. Um, and... I think it is worth practicing penalties, uh, and I, I remember I remember that that uh, somewhere at some point. Uh, I'm pretty sure they do practice penalties now. Yeah, um, they did massively in well, 2018. Certainly. Yeah, yeah, they did. Um, they did in Euro '96. Actually, this is um, something is it, that is came, came up myth? when I was researching that. But well, actually, it was Brian Robson was in charge under Terry Venables of um, 
working with England's penalty takers. But what they did is they they just took it as read that it would be sorted out within five, <laughs> penalty, within yeah. five penalties. So they only practiced with five takers. And Brian Robson... And they all scored. Bugged. Yeah, they all scored. And then it's like... Oh, the Germans are still here. We're going to have to find yeah. a you know a volunteer now, and then you know up steps um, up well, steps Gareth Southgate. Well, I, I, I want to draw to a close because we're pressing both on our listeners' patience, so don't you guys time. <laughs> but, but I just want to to get your if you can remember what your reaction was uh, at the end of that of that game. So maybe Mike first, then Rob, and then I'll give you mine. Yeah, well, a couple of things stick in my mind actually. I mean, one was um, one was Hoddle's reaction in the immediate television interview after England had gone out. One of the first questions he's asked is, um, "Has has the sending off cost you the game, or did it affect?" It? And, and, and Hoddle said, "Oh, of course it has." It's like a bit a bit flippant, but um, I I think yeah, I think the way Hoddle handled that, and apparently he didn't speak to Beckham after the game either. It was you know Tony Adams that went up in the dressing room and put his arm around him. I just wonder with Hoddle, you know, could he have handled that better? Because that is the like, you know, blaming or partly blaming Beckham in the TV interview after the game. That then starts the narrative of ten heroic lions, one stupid boy, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, and everything that follows from that. And um, yeah, one reflection on the game is that if that red card hadn't happened, we might have lost the greatest. Yeah, you know, oh, the fact that the red card happened, we might have lost the greatest World Cup game of all time. Because at half time, that was so beautifully poised. So I would love to have seen, you know, that second half out, you know, 11 on 11. Yeah, it just became another time. game, didn't it? Completely. Yeah, became, and it's still, even with that, it's still, like, you know, one of the great legendary yeah, World right. Cup games. Yeah, it could be 4 all or anything. Yeah, but the thing, I mean, you can't, you know, you can't manufacture the rules for the sake of television. I do, I do think football's got that coming in the post with VAR and social media and, uh, yeah, you know, these kind of things. Maybe Vote. In about 20, <laughs> 20 years be a time. red card? Yeah. Click like for a red card or not. Well, it'll yeah, be, it'll if there's be one... Cricket, it'll be cricket that gets it first. Vote now for who's going to bowl at the other end. <laughs> but that's, that's something which I think... <laughs> It's, yeah. it's months away, not years away. Because but, if there's uh, one place you can get composed, rational debate on things, it's Twitter, <laughs> isn't it? So, <laughs> so, Rob, what was what was your yeah? I suppose memory of the reaction. Uh, yeah, I suppose this is the last time I really, really, really cared about the England team. Um, I still want to win. You know, I was chuffed in 2018, particularly this in the likable bunch. But I think I wonder if it's so tied up with being a Man United fan and the, the utter hatred towards Beckham and it almost and I don't know I'm not, I'm not kind of conscious of this but I wonder if it created a kind of individual siege mentality as well um, and around the same time you had all the you know if the Neville's could play for England so can I and everything uh, and I never quite cared as much about England after that um, as for the night I I don't have any memory of after the game because <laughs> I was still a student and yeah See, this is where you make me feel old because I was already eight years into. What well, I would say, there were some quite nice. Teacher. There were some quite nice little details I found when I did that article about uh, what they all did. You know, like Owen back at the hotel pr- privately felt guilty because he was still buzzing off his goal. Obviously, he was disappointed and got out, but it was part of him that, as you can understand, absolutely buzzing. 
that he just played like that at the age of 18 in the World Cup. There was Adams, the contrasting reaction, you know, Euro 96, when they went out, he went off on what would be his final bender. This time, like, totally at peace with himself. And his only vice, when he got home, he treated himself to a McDonald's on the way home, which I thought was quite nice. Um, and yeah, just you forget the kind of human side of it all, really. You know, Batty... Um, able to put it in perspective, go to family. And also it's interesting that Beckham, these things are kind of arbitrary, you know, in a different era, Batty or a different time, Batty could have been the villain. Skulls could have been the villain for missing that sitter at three, one at two, one. Um, just all pegged up. Back up. I think, I mean, I read the Hoddle Adams talks about how he was actually impressed with really impressed with, because his his book is quite nuanced on Hoddle, you know, talks a lot about his failings as well as his strengths. And he said he was really impressed with the human side he showed in the dressing room. And apparently he was quite kind. After that interview on the pitch, he went out of his way to say, no, I don't think Beckham should have been sent off. The problem is the damage had been done by then, as Mike said. And it was typical Hoddle, really. Often he had good intentions, but it just clumsily delivered them and in a way that um, affected people. And obviously he didn't last long after, which is a shame because... I think that was the last period, certainly pre-Southgate, when you felt the Venables and Hoddle England were making tangible progress. And Hoddle was so passionate about kind of changing the DNA of English football. He still is, really. Um, but he did himself so much damage when his diary came out soon after, which is the most fascinating read. I mean, at times, it's just as cringeworthy as The Office. At other times, it's incredibly insightful. Um the problem is that it has everyone's warts in it apart from his, um, like total lack of self-awareness. Um, and that book basically finished him, didn't it, with the England dress. He lost the dress from him then. <clears throat> and I was gone, I think, the next January because of the um, newspaper interview. But, I mean, they were looking, the FA, I'm sure, just used that as an excuse to get rid of him. But, yeah, just, uh, I mean, I do find Hodder, I think it was the most fascinating World Cup campaign England have had since... 1990 probably even more so in 2018 even though they went out in the last 16 there was just so much going on um one epic game some fascinating individual stories kind of tragedies as well um so yeah it's something i mean I, I, the one thing i don't buy Holland's always saying not might have won would have won the world cup and they beat argentina and they still had to beat the netherlands brazil and france yeah um I think the, the the bigger regret is that they ended up in the tougher half of the draw. But having said that, had they gone in the other half of the draw, they would have played Croatia in the last 16. So, you know, it's not exactly a gimme, is it? Um, Croatia, then Germany, then France, then Brazil that way. So, but they were a really, I think they were a really good side and, and they played their part in the, probably, I'd say probably the greatest World Cup game since 86 still. Well, I, 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 I don't think... Um... Sorry, guy. I, no, I, go on, I, I don't think there'll be a, a World Cup or any international tournament really where England have come away from it with so many regrets. Um, yeah, because, that's a good point. Because it did feel like there was something there, and then then you add in that kind of I don't know the X factor of Owen as well. You know what? Who just felt unplayable at that point? You know, really good side, all really good age, loads of really good emerging players, but they were kind of undone by. How bad decisions, um, you know, from See. players, from Hoddle and things like that. It's yeah, it, it. Looking back at it now, it, it all could have gone so differently. I think, yeah. but even, you know, but even the way it went, I still I agree with Rob. It's um, probably the most fascinating and interesting comp, uh, World Cup England had apart from Italian ninety. Uh, well, I, I'm kind of 
part way with you on a lot of what you're saying and not on others. Um, the regrets I have watching in the World Cup is, is in 86, I think they would have won it. And in 1990, I think they would have won it. I didn't think we were going to win it in 98. But, um, you know, had we not come up against the greatest goal ever and a refereeing error in 86, I think we'd have won that. And I think um, if we hadn't had the freak goal with, uh, with um, was it? Uh, Bremer. Bremer, Andy Bremer, yeah. Um, then I think we'd have won that as well. In uh, Listening to you guys talking about Hoddle has changed my, my view. I always felt he was a strange fish who was overrated. Now I think he's a strange fish who was probably rated about right listening to, I think, to you guys. I think the cliche of him is, is you so often because it's true. A, a brilliant coach, terrible man manager, essentially. Yeah, and I, so I, it's, that's why it's quite a complicated um, subject. But my, my overarching reaction when sort of you know the 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 ball went over the bar and we were out was was not one of of um, it was disappointment, but it wasn't one of overarching disappointment. Nor was it one of we could have gone on to win this. I mean, I, I really love World Cups. I think I've said to you that's why I want forty eight teams in because <laughs> I love watching all these all these matches and all these players and all the kits and everything else. So I have that that kind of thing going on. But what I did think was that England had given us a really good run for our money. Okay, mm. we didn't have all the matches, but but. We, we had an all-time great match in which we lost by the slimmest of margins, but we got to know the players. We, we, we were there, as you say, right at the beginning, Mike, there was this beautiful sort of aesthetic quality to, to playing in midsummer in, in Europe where you, know, you start under natural light and finish with floodlights. And, and it, was, it was shortened but I didn't feel shortchanged at all by either the World Cup or by England. Um, but I never felt we were going to win it, so no, I, uh, I, I wasn't just no, when I we didn't, didn't win it. No, I didn't. I think they're a really good side. Like, I think ind- individually they could have taken any side in the tournament on a good day, but I don't think they could have taken them all in succession. But I agree. I think you're right. It was a short time and not short change. I mean, I, would f- I found this tournament from an England point of view far more interesting than the quarterfinals under Sven. When they kind of sleep yeah. their way through, or or 2018 when we got to the semi, yeah, up to a point. Which, I think they get, you know, was, they get extra was, points when you get to the semi final. Yeah, it automatically takes on a certain importance. But yeah. you're right. I mean, the games themselves. Colombia game was okay. It was mainly memorable because they won a penalty shootout. The Sweden game was essentially quite boring. But yeah, no, I agree with you. I think I would rather relive '98, yes, than 2018, yeah, exactly and not only because I was 20 years younger. Yeah. I don't think. Um, you know, I, I I don't think England would have won this, even if they'd have gone into the yeah. um, inverted commas easier half of the draw. But I think part of the regret of it is, is it felt like even even in defeat, it felt like it there was so much promise there. It's how quickly yeah. it all fell apart afterwards. Yes. I mean, the next international tournament, England were all over <laughs> under yes. Keegan at Euro two thousand. God bless him. We oh. should do that sometime. I know it's slightly oh. outside our remit, but I think we should yeah. do it. Oh well, on that point, uh, it's slightly beyond our remit to for me to be keeping you this late because I promised you otherwise. So we'll uh, wrap up this section and we'll move to the quarterfinals uh, in the next episode of Ness and Dormer.